This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, friends. Happy Tuesday to you and uh, happy, I guess, Video Games Day. You got to love it. If... Oh, man. Good memories. Made it through childhood with some video games. Really? Which ones? Atari. I used to play my Atari set, but then I loved football. I always liked Intellivision. I also had an Intellivision, not to brag, because that meant I was rich. Okay. Uh, even though I've really... never even heard of that. You I don't haven't? think. Oh, I've heard of Atari. Intellivision was Intelligent Vision. Really? Mm-hmm. Hmm. Best video games ever, but it was almost too good for its own... You know, good. Isn't that interesting? All the best video games existed when we were kids. Yeah. All the new ones with all the, you know, yeah, the movement gun and guns and... Don't, yeah. But I don't know if Terry believes that. Terry, Not at all. as an adult, has what? been playing... He you... plays more video games now than he probably did as a child. No. No. I, I'm an adult. I don't have time, but... Yeah. Uh, you used to. Like, before the I, flood. I will as my child continues to grow. Mm-hmm. Because right now, it's like I have to... Um, Censor, you could say? Yeah. Kind of pull back. There's certain uh, topics, certain, you know, games that really aren't appropriate for a little kid. Right. But, you know, at some point. Like, what game game wouldn't be appropriate that you would play? Call of Duty. Oh. Can't can't play that with a little kid. Yeah. Murder of Duty. It's not murder. It's 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 simulation of war. It's different. What I think is fantastic is now in the in the games. You tell me. I don't get to play them at all. But like when you um, kill somebody in Call of Duty, don't they just evaporate? No. Or do they just sit there and flail? Depends on the, on the version you play. There's definitely twitching and uh, gurgling. When, yeah. when I was a kid, they a uh, couple of the games I had had a um, how did they like a violence meter? Oh, oh really? cool! So you had a little toggle. You could like really push Show it way how down. How you wanted it to or be, or you could just do it way over the top. Wow. So in this so, version, I want his head to fall off. Yeah, it's just... I want this one really violent, In this Mom. version, I want them to go out for a cup of cocoa the after one, they're finished fighting. <laughs> the ones that really got me were the racing simulation games for some reason. Why? Just, you could... It was like endless adjustments that you could make to a car to try to figure out how to make it go around the track faster and faster faster and And it just kind of got addicted. Once you figured out how to do it, you're like, oh, wait, I can just tweak this little thing here and all of a sudden you'd get... A little bit faster, a little bit faster. Holy And cow. then it started affecting the way you drove your actual car. Yeah. My wife would look over and she goes, why are you doing that again? Because I'm like cutting the corner through yeah. the neighborhood just right. So I didn't, you know. I saw this one guy's uh, like uh, cover on his license plate that um, he's obviously like a, an addict to these video games. He's so addicted. And it says, until the last brain cell dies. That was Whoa. A, that was a gift? Hmm. What was that? It was a gift for my wife. So the last brain cell dies. Yeah. So, you know, we would we'd always play Street Fighter 2, and every time my mom would come in and we were fighting Chun-Li, who's a female, mm. she would say, why are you hitting a girl? That's a great point. Right. And you're like, Mom, watch this, because she's crazy good. She's got nunchucks. <laughs> yeah. Look what she can do with that leg. This lady can destroy us all, Mom. We must take her out. Well, man, speaking of destruction, you don't need video games anymore. All you need to do is look at the aftermath of Irma. Irma destroyed about 25% of the houses in the Florida Keys. Right. That is, that's just tragic. There's boats in the middle of 
intersections. It's just you just lifted them right chaos. out of the water, put them on the shore, and they're just, it looks like a it looks like a, a highway car pileup you see in the Midwest when there's fog and yeah. ice and everything. All the boats just crammed together. So I mean, a this is going to cost a lot of money. But B, you got to – how do people get back to their life when their life is scattered about the neighborhood? Right. I mean, a good in, question. In, in Just Houston, start over. In Houston, the kids are getting back to school for the first day of school today, I believe. Oh, in boy. In some places. Plus they've like, lost weeks a couple weeks. Yeah. Now they're going to have to go way into next summer. Mm. And summer in Houston, it's horrible. Boy. Can you imagine going to your house and it's not there? Nope. It's everywhere. Can't imagine it. Horrible. Horrible stuff. Especially in like the – some of these countries don't have a, a prayer of re, oh, these you know, I, the recouping. Yeah. yeah. French president uh, – what's his name? Not sure. Macron. Macron. There you go. Mm-hmm. He's, uh, he's apparently heading to the Caribbean to, to look at some of the islands that they I guess some are French. Protectorates, yeah. they call them, yeah. There's a Dutch island also and so there's – these other countries are trying to take care of, of what they can. There's some cruise ships from uh, Royal Caribbean yeah, that are sending to, supplies. And going to pick people up, I guess, because there, there was like 2,000 people stranded on an island. They're going to yeah. pick them up. Where are you going to take them? Florida. Well, I know, but Florida's got its own problems. Yeah, I know. Yeah. But, you know. <laughs> like they, maybe they need to take them up to New York. Oh, they could do that. But That would be fun. Yeah. I mean, if you're going to leave a hurricane area, what better way to go than in the Royal Caribbean? Hmm. Unless ever... something happens to the Royal Caribbean. Yeah, but have you ever tried their all-you-can-eat buffet? Oh, to top notch. Mm-hmm. Hmm. First time I tried caviar. By the <laughs> way, an la- all-you-can-eat buffet. <laughs> last time I tried caviar. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes you don't want to try caviar. It's kind of The cleanup crew is very familiar with the caviar. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's going to be a big seller there. Uh, today, by the way, we're going to talk about um, how the world became consumers. It really is a fascinating article by uh, Dr. Frank Trentman about beginning to end kind of the mentality of consumerism where having – buying the latest, the greatest, having to have uh, all of these toys and gadgets and things, um, it used to be just a sign of major moral decline. Hmm. And then now, now it's – Now it's a status symbol. Now it's a status symbol. Maybe you can talk about the new – thousand dollar iphone yeah, x I, I wanted to because like you don't need the x because does the x do anything extra special facial recognition exactly not so, not important what this isn't a bionic man series yeah like surface charging i'll just set it down on some like a plate or some sort of hold little... it isn't that doesn't doesn't samsung's phone do that this is the iphone though matt yeah no where have they been if it can They've vacuum, perfected it. If oh, it can okay. vacuum for me or wash the dishes, I'll spend it. Yeah. I'll spend a grand. Sure, well, it probably can. Well, there's probably an app connected to another device you can purchase, <laughs> and you'll have that control so over I, your vacuum. I got to buy more. Is what you're saying? Yes, yeah. it's all but, about consumerism. But in buying more, guess what you get? You get to be more receipts. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Maybe I'll just take my family on a Caribbean. By cruise. the way, uh, the Latin word for um, listen to this. Tell me if this mm. sounds familiar. Yeah. Have you ever heard of the word luxus? Lexus? Not I drove close. one one time. Lux- Luxor? Latin. The Latin word for luxury was Luxus. Hmm. So a Lexus would be kind of probably the Japanese Latin version of luxury cars. What about Alexa? No, Alexa is uh, Latin for eavesdropper that could put you in prison. Hmm. We've had stories about that actually happen. That darn Alexa. <laughs> 
So you got to watch out for that. So we will be talking about uh, how the world became consumers. And it's interesting. There's been a lot of debate about it and it and it still rages on. And meanwhile, the rest of us just keep consuming and consuming and consuming. Mm. Even when you think it would decline, apparently in Sweden, um, people purchased like – what was it? 30 times more clothes last – in 2017 than they did in 2011. Wow. Hmm. We're consuming a lot of clothes. Well, at least their wardrobe is diverse. Yeah. They look great. <laughs> what a great group there. So we'll get to all of that fun plus, of course, headlines, empty news and other stories. But first, let's get to the real headlines with Terry South. Terry, what's going on that we should be paying attention to? Hurricane Irma is still wrecking havoc in South Carolina late Monday after causing nine, at least nine deaths. Now I've heard at least 10 in Florida, Georgia and South Carolina. A flash flood emergency issued for Charleston Monday after... Afternoon as Irma was downgraded to a tropical storm, battering the southeast and torrential rain and uh, dangerous storm surges. Irma brought heavy rain and wind to Atlanta Monday night. Brunswick, Georgia, recorded of six inches of rain Monday, and uh, what Buford, uh, South Carolina, registered 5.9 inches. Uh, Monday, if you saw the pictures of this, Jacksonville, downtown Jacksonville, Florida, just had storm surges racing through the streets. And people just trying to look like, wait, is that my bank? Wait. Hold on. Is that my, yeah. It's so, crazy. Just cr- the amount of water moving through Florida right now because of rivers overflowing and oh. just the storm just keeps churning forward. Uh, it says much of the Florida Keys is without power and water. All three of the Keys hospitals, including their emergency rooms, are closed. County officials said a dawn to dust curfew is in place. Parts of U.S. Route 1 are open. But the southern end are are closed off as they continue to try to inspect bridges. Yeah. They said some of the bridges are the uh, the type that open draw bridges so that the the boats can go through. They were left open during the storm so that people wouldn't try to cross these bridges, and they may have been bent. And if that's the case, they'll have to replace them. So this, uh, yesterday, the uh, um, he's a deputy of the on the Homeland Security Department saying that uh, this is the biggest electrical electricity uh, project ever now to reconnect Florida to the grid. Oh my heavens! All these people are yeah, without power. Yeah, how many power. like six million people or whatever? Yeah, much of the state still struggling to stay on with power. So just <laughs> oh, having electricity, and the rest of us are just complaining about going to work. Right. Hmm. What are you going to do? Yeah. Uh, other news. President Trump's aide, Hope Hicks, who has been serving as the White House interim communications director since August, has been officially promoted to permanently, to permanently lead the White House communications team. Oh. oh. Okay. So she's 28 years old. Yeah. Wow. Friend. Been like a long-term She's been PR for aide. Ivanka yeah. and Trump. And uh, so she's been there from the beginning. She's yeah. loyal, all this stuff. Um, in other news, Hope Hicks and other, uh, several other White House aides have retained lawyers for the Russia investigation. Is now that uh, Mo- um, what Mueller wants to talk with them because he's focusing on obstruction of justice, specifically with the firing of James Comey. And apparently all that uh, White House, uh, what, the Oval Office access from these aides where they just walk in the door. Yeah, right. They all were in the room when Trump was talking about why he wanted to fire Comey. And there's this document that Trump wrote that explains that it was because of the Russia investigation. Yeah. And Mueller has that document, so he has to talk to everyone who was involved and in the room. And so every one of these aides is now having to hire someone that's like a thousand bucks an hour. Yeah. They don't have the money. Isn't that so. interesting, too? Because then, uh, did you hear what Steve Bannon said about the whole Comey firing? I just probably not something that he would have done that way. Yeah. And then they asked him what about Jared Kushner being the one yeah. the force behind it. He goes, No comment. I wasn't in the room for that. 
It's just, also, yeah. the White House aides are being told not to lie for the president when questioned. Great. Wrong. That's good advice, That's right? Great there. advice. That's United- like we had to give Jeff the same advice not to lie for me. He's like, stop lying for Matt. <laughs> that guy lies even when I didn't have to have him lie. The United Nations Security Council unanimously agreed to new sanctions against North Korea on Monday in response to the country's uh, nuclear test. Earlier this month, all 15 Security Council members agreed to set an, uh, economic sanctions that banned exports on North Korea textiles and limited the country's imports of crude oil. It was actually a, uh, a watered-down version yeah. of the bill because they wanted to get China and Russia involved and they weren't going to go with the original text. It was so too much. Yeah, so now it's been diluted to what? Uh, Anything usable? Let's see here. Are they really going to... The Security Council initially considered a tougher set of sanctions that would have banned oil imports, but agreed to a more moderate draft in order to gain China and Russia's support. China buys nearly 80% of North Korea's textile exports and supplies most of the crude oil to the country. Mm. So China's like, well, you know, we get a lot of money from them. We kind of need their stuff. Also, the Senate passed a uh, resolution uh, saying they do not like white supremacists. Okay, good. So got that. I on, do not like on the them, books. Sam. I am. It's on the books. <laughs> yeah, wasn't that a wasn't that a cartoon? A Russian politician, a member of the Duma, which is their Congress, yeah. basically, uh, said U.S. intelligence missed it when Russia intelligence stole the president of the United States. Hmm? Made the remark on a Russia TV show Sunday evening with Vladimir Solonov. Ooh, another Vlad. Yeah. The episode centered on the U.S. D- diminishing power in the world stage and the resulting chaos. Uh, and so the guy said that a, a example of that is the way that their security services missed the fact that we stole their president from them. <laughs> do you not? Okay. Do you not know that we stole your president? So, well, we'll see if that was a joke. I'm not sure. I hope so. Sometimes Russian humor kind of, we miss that in this country. Well, let's ask Jeff about it because Jeff um, lived in Russia. Yeah. For a couple of years. Mm-hmm. Um, Russians, are they funny? Let's just say their sense of humor is dry. There you go. So we'll see. But it's a dry humor. But you just dropped that and everybody went, what? Yeah. Uh, also, this new study out from uh, WalletHub.com. Oh, yeah. Happiest states in America. Really? They, okay, they, what are they? They have metrics, how emotionally and physically well the citizens are, work environment, community gauges such as average leisure time, and the volunteerism rate. Really? That's how they get they gauge whether you're happy or not. Sure. M- most happy, Minnesota. Oh, yeah. yeah. Mm. Out of 100, they got 71. Well, they have a fun accent, so who wouldn't be happy with that accent? They have millions of lakes. The rest of the, t- the top five, uh, Utah, Hawaii, California, and Nebraska. <gasps> really? Utah. We're and happy. I have ties to California, so I'm like the happiest guy. Have you guy. been to Hawaii? I have been to Hawaii. See? So you're like running all of them. Yeah. Least happy. Uh-oh. West Virginia. Oklahoma, Louisiana, Alabama, and Arkansas. I haven't been to any one of those states. By the way, it sounds like Trump states. <laughs> really, when you think about it, that's the Trump, like West Virginia, Alabama. Oklahoma, Louisiana, Alabama, Arkansas, probably, yeah. How can that be? Almost heaven, West Virginia. Yeah, because the word almost heaven. West Virginia is a beautiful place. Holy cow. Have you been so there? heaven, I would think, would be the greatest thing in the world, right? Yeah. Almost, Almost is is a pretty good thing too. Mm, so the there's road. that it's much on, of a difference between yeah. heaven and almost. It's on the road to heaven. Aren't we all on the road to heaven? Mm-hmm. Hopefully, depends. I mean, some aren't.
Uh, West Virginia is a beautiful place. So it's so it's the landscape's incredible, incredibly lush green hills. It's beautiful. It's just probably an economic. These are places that are deeply impacted by the economy. I bet. Also, the setting of that movie I told you to go see Logan Lucky. Yeah, haven't mm-hmm. seen it yet. But what's the problem? I told ah. you about it like twenty four hours ago. No, but see, when I leave the great building of BYU Broadcasting, I go start my other job. Come on. I, st- I still have to talk to people and write things and I have clients to see. Couldn't you have uh, just skipped your nap yesterday? No. No? How do you think I make it through stage two of every day? <laughs> then I go home and I have stage three with my beautiful family. Yeah. Is that when you squeeze your nap time in? That's usually when I hit my Netflix. Okay. Because <laughs> I get home and no one's home. But it's, it's like, family time because they're in the house somewhere. No, no one's even home. Wow. And that's family time? Yeah. My wife and I, we just sit there and look at each other and eat our oatmeal. Family time. So are you uh, related to Don Draper or Walter White? Are they in like the family? It. Yeah, totally. <laughs> totally. By the way, what's funny about your reference there? I knew who both of them were. Of course you did. Totally strange. Which is weird because a lot of times when you make a reference like that, I don't know what you're talking about. Yeah, you're more well-versed in the Netflix realm than I am. But Well, the problem is I probably have seen significantly more, but I don't really watch them. I just turn them on and then I work. Like I'll write. I need like something on when I'm writing. It stimulates my brain. Do any of those catchphrases from those shows ever creep into your yes. writing? Uh-huh. Like give me the blue stuff. Yeah. I don't know. I don't. I'm the one who knocks. Yeah, I don't see, I don't remember that. See, you're, that's your brain. Your brain remembers these catchphrases. I don't remember that. That's probably why I'm not into Marvel comics. Can't remember any of their names. Well, they're all kind of the same too. So. There's Lizard Man. There's Big Muscly Flying Super Dude. Wrong. There's Batman with the great belt and the funny little sidekick. Robin. See, I know you got two. that one right. Yeah, but I I learned that when I was young. That hasn't changed much. Was it the the uh, rhyme? Uh, Jingle Bells, Batman Smells. Robin laid an egg. The Batmobile lost its wheel. And the Joker got away. Yeah. I can't even remember that. I'm losing my mind because of all this technology. Anyway, we'll get to all the fun, folks. But uh, we we can't not take a break. So we will take a break and then guess what we're going to do? Come back and get into it. How the world became a world of consumers Interesting discussion up next. This is the Matt Townsend Show. You're listening to us right here on BYU Radio. Things, things, and more things. Today we live in a world where we, where all we do seems to be is, is consuming more and more and more. We need more than ever before. In fact, we even need things that maybe we didn't even know we needed a while ago. Is this a good thing or a bad thing, all this consumerism? Well, here to speak to us today about it is uh, Frank Trentman, the author of the book The Empire of Things, How We Became a World of Consumers from the 15th Century to the 21st Century. And Frank Trentman is a professor of history at Berkeley. Beck College in the University of London. Frank, thank you so much for being with us today. Yes. Hello. How are you? Good, good. Thank you very much. Thanks for being here. Um, it's really, I, I, loved, uh, I loved reading about your work because 
when we think of consumerism, we, we kind of just think it's it's a it's a it's a new thing. But really, um, there there is an incredible and deep history of of consumerism. And um, one of the things that that kind of shocked me about it is uh, it, it's it's kind of has gone from through this history of being a morally good thing to be a consumer or a bad thing to be a consumer because you know it's just one of the it's just one of the great sins of the world to then kind of turning to being a more positive uh neutral thing and and so where are we today frank when it comes to consumerism uh, overall is is it is it good or bad for society to uh, to take on this idea of of consuming and consuming a very important question um, uh, you raise, and, and never more relevant than today, really. Um, today, I think we're stuck um, and uh, pretty much in a big mess and confused because we have a clash of um, effectively two views and um, lifestyles that concern consumption. On the one hand, um, we live uh, most most of us, and certainly your listeners, we live in democratic societies where we believe people should have free choice and um, should live the lives and consume what they please, and that people shouldn't intervene, not regulate too much, and certainly not prohibit or punish them for uh, consumption as long as it doesn't harm others. But then on the other hand, we are now living a affluent lifestyle like never before that's burning through the planet and that's not sustainable. Mm. Um, so we're on a collision course really between an older political um, morally positive view of consumption and one that's environmentally disastrous. Do you know what? And it's interesting. I could almost see that that consumerism now takes on maybe and maybe it already is in your research a more environmental uh, view as well. Well, it does, um, and, and there are many precursors. Um, and in fact, uh, movements in America have uh, for some time been at the cutting edge. So the ethical consumer movements, political consumer movements. Um, people who want to um, slow down or the so-called minimalists who want to live with fewer possessions. But so far, really, these are movements at the margin. I think one has to be quite realistic. I don't want to um, scare your listeners or be pessimistic. There are plenty of good stories in history which alert us to the fact that change is possible. But at the moment, really, we live in a situation where governments work on the assumption um, that it's up to individuals if they want to change. But the problem, of course, is cons our consumer culture is not an individual um, uh, choice. Um, we live certain lifestyles because the community around us ticks to a certain rhythm. It's mm. not that individuals dream up motorways or that individuals suddenly fantasize about a car. We have certain social patterns that are very intensive when it comes to consuming. So um, if a city is built around the automobile, it's very difficult for individuals just to say, no, I'm not going to participate. Right. Well, and in fact, in the United States, there's big discussions about uh, tax breaks, restructuring the tax code with the whole idea that if people had more money in their pocket, they could go spend more money. <laughs> And um, you sit there and you think, so the whole 
movement of our government then is to facilitate better and more transactions uh, commercially. Uh, that's correct. I mean, in um, really in the 18th century, uh, for the first time, uh, observers and uh, people we now call economists, like Adam Smith, uh, awoke uh, to the fact that consuming wasn't a drain on society, but that, in fact, when some people consumed or wanted new goods or fashions, this created work and it created innovation and productivity and enriched a country. And since then, um, capitalist societies uh, increasingly embraced consuming as an engine of growth. Now, the problem with that, of course, is there are different kinds of consuming. So you can consume in a more sustainable way or in a less sustainable way. It makes a difference mm. um, if you um, drive a um, car with a big engine um, that guzzles through 10 gallons um, a minute or if you have a more efficient car and if you drive less or less often. And I think that's where we, at the moment, are a little bit rudderless, is that um, with a few exceptions, like alcohol and drugs, or in the case of Italy, um, very, very fancy big yachts, um, governments treat all consumption as a little bit um, equal. Yeah. And in fact, uh, talk about the word consumption. You, In your article in The Atlantic, you pointed out it comes from a really interesting uh, you know, base and Latin word um, that uh, is also, you know, connected to um, disease and and even Christ's last words on the cross. Yes, that's right. So the, I mean, the original word, um, consumer, really refers to something being used up. So imagine a carpenter who um, works away at a piece of wood to make a table the um, wood chips um, that ended up on the um, workshop uh, floor, those were considered um, in the past as something that has been consumed. And from there, it wasn't very far in the English language to talk of tuberculosis as um, consumption. Hmm. The body was effectively eaten up. Um, to complicate things, is um, there's a second um, a Latin word which sounds very similar has um, an additional um, M, uh, consumare, and that's Christ's last word, consumatum est, as if um, something is accomplished or finished. Mm. But there was in both of these there was an idea that um, consuming is something that has a finite um, moment in it, and it's only really in the 17th and 18th century where um, that negative connotation loses uh, some of its purchase and people start to talk of consuming as something that involves purchase and choice or in the 19th century fantasizing about desires. So women uh, in particular going to the department stores suddenly talk of consuming, um, consuming fashion so where consumption becomes a um, hobby or a lifestyle. And then by the years around 1900, for the first time, you have people talking of themselves or others as consumers, um, as people who they said represented the public interest, because ultimately everyone's a consumer, but only a 
few people are farmers or steel workers, but everyone was a consumer. Hmm. And people argued that gave them a kind of um, collective right and also duty to use their purchasing power for higher ends, such as um, rewarding companies that paid minimum wages or punishing companies that used cheap child labor. So, so that it tends, I guess, to be the positive side of it. Um, the other side of it, though, is we have we now have the wasting disease, and you know many wonder if the world's not finished. Um, here's one, another point you made that I thought was so so interesting was uh, in the article was from um, nineteen or seventeen fifty nine uh, the theory of moral sentiments from Adam Smith. You um, basically were citing some of his his push. You said people he observed were stuffing their pockets with little conveniences and then buying coats with more pockets to carry even more by themselves. Tweezer cases, elaborate snuff boxes and other baubles might not have much use. But Smith pointed out what mattered was that people looked at them as a means of happiness. I mean, today, even hearing that, that. They're buying all of these little conveniences, and then they have to buy more coats and pockets to carry them. Uh, it reminds me of everybody kind of in the United States where we have so much stuff, we now have to get storage units just to hold them. That's right. You need Mac mansions, and you need um, um, stored, um, stored yourself facilities. I mean, the interesting thing about Smith is he did not, I mean, what you cited is absolutely right, but he he then added, you know, um, because he was um, a very shrewd observer of people around him, he pointed out, well, of course, because people buy snuff boxes or coats with more pockets to carry their their baubles, doesn't mean they automatically become happy. I mean, so he was Mm. aware um, that this this. This was a sort of um, hope rather than reality. And he pointed out that um, on their deathbed, people then looked around and they see all the stuff they've accumulated and they ask themselves, you know, was this it? (laughs) Was this really what life was about? Um, Somehow I didn't get happy. But he he then, Smith also added, is what really mattered was the, um, the prospect of um, expanding um, and enriching your life. So it's not necessarily whether we are happy, but that a lot of consumer goods give us, at least for a moment, the idea that we can live life better or differently. That it then turns out to be not always true, it's a different matter. Mm. But I think that's a serious point we need to um, take on because it explains the power of consumer culture in our societies, is that people aren't just um, stupid or brainwashed. A lot of the stuff people consume comes with the potential of doing something or experiencing something that otherwise you wouldn't. Yeah, and in fact... That's why people do it. Talk talk about that, because it seems like there is a trend in economics today where uh, maybe these millennial generation especially might be opting to spend their money more on experiences, maybe travel, trips, than they are willing to spend it on things, mortgages, and other debt. Yes, there's a lot of talk about um, that, um, but... um from the research uh, that I cite in the book, um, it's also clear there's a lot of um, misunderstanding or even um, illusion about it. 
And the first thing to say is that um, there's never in the past or at present been a neat, sharp separation between objects and goods on the one side and experiences on the other. Mm. A lot of um, uh, what is part of consuming is both. So when people go shopping, um, that's not just um, all about uh, purchasing an item. It's partly about the experience of going shopping. That's why there are malls and department stores and so forth. That's, you know, they want it to be fun. So the two have been linked for a long time. In the 18th century, when we see a massive increase in the um, items um, people acquire and, um, and, and showcase in their homes, that's also the period where we see an increase in experience and spectacle. So think of Handel's fireworks, which closed down bridges in London because so many people wanted the experience of listening to the music and seeing the fireworks. So just because you like experience doesn't automatically mean people turn away um, from goods. And if you look at data on inventories, how many clothes people have, um, the amount of stuff they have in their lives, um, yes, perhaps some young people no longer buy a car, but um, um, uh, join a car-sharing um, facility. But look at their wardrobes. I mean, people today have more clothes than sure. they did 20 years ago. Look at furniture. Most people who say, oh, I want to share, I believe in sharing. Um, yes, that's true for certain things, like perhaps travel um, and sharing someone's uh, uh, holiday apartment. But when it comes to their own home, how many people actually um, in the United States, or for that matter in Europe, share houses and flats no increasingly the assumption is one person's um, one every person should have their own flat and their own television and their own computer and their own fridge and so forth so um i'm not as optimistic as some prophets are about this shift away from stuff and you don't have to be a prophet you just have to live um anywhere near coastline and look out to the ocean and you notice that container ships are getting bigger and yeah. bigger and bigger and they're not just carrying experiences they're carrying <laughs> stuff and and the materials needed to make stuff well and it seems like in the end um it, that what's going to happen is that the experience will become where will be where consumers Move. So we've had on the show talking about malls and how you know a lot of malls are emptying out because yes. the kind of box mall doesn't work anymore. So now what they want are more experiential malls where you can go climb a wall and you can go on a Ferris wheel and then go buy your your goods. Um, so it's it's I guess the consumption of experience then becomes the next formal overt consumption as well. But you're saying there's a paradigm well, underneath I, I this think... that we're still consumers. Yes, I think, I think the examples you cite about the transformation of retail spaces and malls are, are spot on. But, I mean, this is where history um, uh, is quite useful as a perspective to have, because we today, we tend to think everything that happens is new. And, and so there are lots of people who see new eras and paradigm shifts and a new universe and so forth. But the example you just cited about malls having to reinvent themselves that you know, already happened in the years around 1900 when the first department stores realized that to attract customers, they couldn't just 
um, offer goods um, um, at good prices, they needed to provide their customers with experiences. So Selfridges in London introduced a restaurant, a cafe, a nursery <laughs> um, where the children were entertained. You even had um, um, sort of libraries and, and all sorts of fashion shows attached to these department stores. So this is an ongoing story, I think. It's not something new. Yeah. These are cycles. That's why we need someone like you, Frank, to teach us the history of this. I mean, the history just in the article I read and your book that is enormous. There's so much rich information about consumerism. And we'll continue the discussion with Frank Trentman, professor of history at Birkbeck College in the University of London. Um, Wonderful insight. Also, by the way, the author of the book, Empire of Things, uh, how we became a world of consumers from the 15th century to the 21st century. When we come back, we're going to talk about what happens when our world is so oriented around things, getting things, having things, storing things, what does that do to us, to our psyche, and to really our ability to maybe to connect to one another? All straight ahead with Frank Trentman. This is The Matt Townsend Show. You're listening to us right here on BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends. Today we're talking about a world of consumers, the history of uh, consumerism, and uh, how we became a world of consumers. Uh, Frank Trentman joins us. He is a professor of history at Birkbeck College at the University of London, also the author of the book Empire of Things, How We Became a World of Consumers from the 15th Century to the 21st Century. And uh, tr- uh, Frank, the, the research and just the the in-depth view you've taken about consumerism is uh, – it's, it's incredible. Like how much – how much has gone on with people getting into things, uh, being judged for their things, even churches pushing against things? Uh, uh, somewhere you cited a story of a, of a woman being arrested because she had a cotton handkerchief. Um, talk, talk, about, talk about our obsession with things and how over the years and how it's, how it's changed from maybe 15th century to today. Well, yes, um, uh, I think probably fortunately – very few women sporting a fashionable cotton scarf um, will be thrown into into prison or fined a month's wages, um, at least in, in most parts of the world. So that that time, um, which still happened in as late as 18th century in, wow. in Germany, that time is gone. We um, no longer think uh, that authorities need to discipline people into a certain lifestyle. Um, so th- in that sense, we have adopted a much, much, much more liberal approach to consumption. But it's perhaps fair to say that we nonetheless retain a very moral um, attitude to it. So um, even today, there's a lot of soul searching about what's the right kind of consumption. Are we doing the right thing? Um, people are seriously, um, I think, sad when they throw uh, food into the waste bin because they realized you know there are other people starving on the planet so we continue to have um, a moral um, attitude uh, to consumption it's just now no longer 
um, regulated by government or by the churches. Interesting, and and it's almost in a way um, that that uh, companies that that sell consumer products, in some regards, are becoming the churches. It it, it almost seems like because like uh, there's a new release I think today of an iPhone. X, which is now their best product. I mean, or that they've named it today. It's not being released today, but it's it's this idea of you'll have a thousand dollar phone, um, and then those companies like Apple and Facebook and some of these big tech companies also then become, in a way, these moral leaders of society. They take on certain issues. They donate money to charities, and and they further the the, the discussion. Um, is there something strange about a consumer model that also is trying, I guess, to be charitable? Um, no, not not in and of itself. I think we have to recall that the first um, organizations in which consumers came together um, – uh, to work together uh, and to improve their community, the consumer cooperatives, and there are still cooperatives right. um, in the U.S. and elsewhere, were um, established on the premise that consumption wasn't just about individual satisfaction. It was also a bridge between individuals that could help um, to foster cooperation and harmony and the cooperatives um, in the 19th century very sincerely believed that they, by um, co-owning and cooperating, could um, improve the state of the world, um, bringing about peace and harmony mm. and the brotherhood of men. You hear that too, right? Even in our politics today, that um, you know we need that we need democracy, but we also need kind of. The free market economy, because that also, like you're saying, facilitates the free market of ideas, the free market of, of, uh, of you know, democracy and of, of equal rights. And so, it, it, are we seeing that that is true? Are we seeing that where well, where consumerism goes, so too is our lives elevated? Well, there is certainly a symmetry between. Um, what consumers do in the marketplace and what citizens do in um, the political place. And many, especially women, um, when they didn't have the vote yet, so um, you know, just over a century ago, they were making the argument that what's the difference if, if a um, housewife on, um, who has to feed her family on very little money, if she has to go into the marketplace and make complicated decisions, should she buy this product, should she buy this bread, um, should she go to this shop or someone else, if she can do all of that, then surely um, she has the wits to decide um, at election time whether she's going to make her cross next to one candidate on, or to another. So there is there's a you know, a parallel between choosing um, in the marketplace and choosing in a democratic system. And um, I think that symmetry re retains its significance. I think what has changed um, in the last hundred years is that many of the most vocal and politically influential consumer groups 
Um, so the National Consumer League in the United States in the years before the First World War was agitating and working on the premise that um, consumption is life, they said, but consumption is also duty. It, um, it's not just purchase. It's more than that. Um, by consuming, people reflect on what they really need, what their desires are, but they should also reflect on what the consequences are of their actions. So consumers were asked to really step up to the plate and use their purchasing power to alleviate and root out all sorts of abuses. Now, there are still some movements today which try and do that. Um, so we have fair trade movements, for example, things like that. But ultimately, most consumers and most consumption is now no is, is, is sort of a little bit divorced from the kind of social and political reform uh, mission that these earlier uh, proponents had. And I think that has changed. Yeah. No, and I think – oh, Frank, I wish we had more time because you've got, I know, so much great insight and research on – how we how we could use consumerism to make it a safer place to fight so we we don't have as many exploding cars today the minute there's an impact because of you know actually becoming socially active in our consuming um and we see it uh, there's there's power for i think all of us as uh, as people who are pulling the purse strings to to demand certain levels of quality, certain levels of uh, labor, who can labor, who should be making our products, who shouldn't. Um, there's power there. So we appreciate Frank Trentman, uh, professor of history at Birkbeck College, University of London. Go find the book Empire of Things, How We Became a World of Consumers from the 15th Century to the 21st Century. Again, our goal on the show is to help elevate the conversation, also elevate our lives. Let's not just be consumers. Let's be consumers with, uh, with morals, with standards that elevate the rest of the world. We'll continue the journey. Stick with us. This is The Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. I'm ready to go in, Coach. Just give me a chance. Because life doesn't come with a handbook, you need a coach. Here's Dr. Matt and his coaching corner. Play ball! Play ball. I think we've all learned that uh, it is the nature, I think, of most humans to... You know, the minute you have enough money or, or get some money, you, you you want to spend. You want to start to, I guess, hang things and adorn yourself with, with interesting stuff. There's a story that came from CNN, a university student in South Africa who discovered an error that was made in her student loan financial aid department in, in her account where she, she received a deposit of $1 million in her financial aid. In, this is in in South Africa, right? And so she immediately um, they immediately started spending as much money as they possibly could, and ended up spending sixty thousand dollars of the one million dollars before authorities realized the mistake. And then uh, you know because and by the way, it was turned in because everyone around this student was noticing what a great incredible life that she was living. Um, so. It's kind of natural, right? Now this person is in major trouble and um, because I think they they generally don't make $60,000 in five or ten years um, in, in the biggest city and some of the best jobs in South Africa. So 
Anyway, crazy, uh, crazy life. And I think it's natural for us to do that. But go home or just when you have a chance today, think about your consumption. Are you, are you actually wasting away in the things of life? Are you caught up in the thick of the thin things? Because if so, it, it might be time that we all make a little change, start simplifying, pulling back. Less is more. Let's get ahead by subtraction instead of more and more and more addition. That's the Matt Townsend Show. Continue with us through the journey. We'll be back. This is uh, BYU Radio. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, friends, and happy Patriot Day to you as we uh, observe the National Day of Service and Remembrance for those uh, people killed on 9-11 in 2001. Man, it just seems like, what, 16 years ago. Wow. Time flies, doesn't it? Now think about all the problems. North Korea <laughs> locked and loaded. Today there may even be backlash on with North Korea because they're going to be sanctioned again, I guess, from well, the we're, U.N. We're pushing for that, so, yeah. Yeah. And and I think I don't remember what Kim Jong Un said about it, but it will be a, the most painful day in the ever in the memories of all Americans if this goes through. Well, he could stop building weapons and feed his people. Yeah, but you know, it's a good point. He Not wants to happen. He wants to build weapons. So come on, Kim Jong Un. We uh, we will be talking. Uh, maybe we'll even have some solutions for him. How to be a Stoic mm. using ancient philosophy to live a modern life. We have a, a philosopher coming on to talk about Stoicism, which has some really interesting answers and ideas for some of today's biggest problems. Maybe this guy will have an answer for Kim Jong-un, even though Kim Jong-un is deity, right? And In certain parts of the world, yes. Alternative facts. He should have his own answers. Hmm. Just saying. We'll get to that coming up. Plus uh, – Crazy day. Of course, Irma continues to battle the um, southeast and also it's, as it moves its way up toward Georgia now. It's on the door knocking on Georgia's door. Yep. Uh, and then our, what's happening with the other storms? Are they just still lining up? There's Jose. And I think Kati is the other one. And it's supposed to be rolling into Mexico where they just had the earthquake. Yeah. I wonder what the L name is going to be. Larry. Lyman. Lawrence. Liam. I bet it's Liam. There you go. <laughs> Who names their kid Liam? My I'm neighbor. Sorry, <laughs> My neighbor. Jeff's middle name. Liam. What if it is Liam? Will you be offended? No. You love a good name, storm named after you. Yeah. Yeah. I don't blame you. Uh, so we'll get to all of that fun. Plus, uh, we've got some big headlines, um, empty news headlines, actually. Hmm. So the bigness might be relative. Yeah. Yeah. It's Big Lee. It's Big Lee. Yeah. But it's a, it's, a, it's a big story because an Australian surfer punches a shark hmm. to escape. It's, you know, it could have died. So it did the old shark punch. I had another shark story Ooh. from Is over the weekend. And someone I, I, else punched? I, I, well, this one shark punched, the one I had this morning that I actually, like, didn't have room for. There's just so much going there's, on. I, I know. There's so away. many headlines. Guy's riding on a surfboard and... um. 
he wasn't like straddling the surfboard. He's, uh, he's he was uh, he was off to the side or something. Yeah. And the shark came through and bit the board in half. It was an eleven oh, foot I white would shark. Be so mad. And I like bit his hip. <gasps> Ooh. And everything. They did so, get the guy. Yeah. Well, he got in, but they said if he was like laying on top of the board, he would have died. The Whoa. way that shark was moving, it would just took that board and chopped it in half. Oh boy. I'm like wow. Hmm. Let's go surfing off the coast of Australia. Apparently, there's yeah. To, it no, seems, thank you. Seems like to me, it's, it's time like, to bring come in. Are they chumming the water before they surf? Is that the problem? No, he was just he just had a bucket of chicken and just kept eating the wings and th- throwing them into the ocean. Mm. It just seems like they're provoking this. I don't know. Yeah, you don't want to do. They're that. not, but you know, it just seems like there's a lot of attacks. Um, and as if Irma wasn't a big enough problem for Florida, apparently Florida has the worst drivers in the U.S. Again. <laughs> So we'll get to that headline. Ugh. Florida, it just it's one thing after another with them. I was disappointed. I had a story of a gator farm in Orlando. It yeah. was promising that all their gators we're they're gonna we're gonna keep them in their pens through this entire hurricane. Don't worry about them escaping. Oh, that's good news. Yeah. How do you keep a gator in its pen? I don't know. Sounds like a joke. How do you keep a gator in its pen? But then the storm moved past Orlando, and I haven't seen an update, so it's old news. So I had to move on. Yeah, well, apparently the gator problem was more in Houston. <laughs> they, had a, they had a place in Houston. Because the water, had a I mean, the gators situation. were like they were floating, a, like a foot away from the top of the fence. <laughs> Here we go. How do you keep a gator in its pen? You fill it with his chums. <laughs> hmm. Yeah, that's one answer. Huh. You fill it with his chums. See, it's funny no matter who says it. Well, if you have that button. Yeah. Huh? Hmm? Anyway, we'll get to those headlines, but first to the real headlines. Terry, what's going on around the rest of the country? George is bracing for impact this morning as Tropical Storm Irma moved inward over the Florida's Panhandle Coast. The northern bands of the storm have already knocked out power to 150,000 customers in southern Georgia. The uh, storm is set to leave Florida around 11 a.m. Eastern. Experts warn that the rivers throughout the state could see significant flooding from heavy downpours, and the storm surge threatens its Atlantic coast. Governor Nathan Deal declared a state of emergency in all of Georgia's 159 counties on Sunday. For the first time ever, Atlanta's public transit system announced it was shut down all train and bus service Monday due to dangerous high winds. All public schools and most courts and governmental offices are also closed throughout the city. Wow. Just shut it down and shelter in place. Six million people without power. And then you watch on TV, then the power goes out, and what do you do? Then Talk what to do family? You do? I mean, come on. You, and you'll <laughs> only have like three hours of your phone because oh, yeah. that's only like three one-hour series shows on Netflix. You have to have your battery packs ready to go. Yeah. That, that has been entertaining for me, not being part of this, and you can kind of you know separate yourself from the human toil of it all but you can watch on snapchat all the videos people make inside the uh, hurricane well that's yeah it's kind of interesting to watch but it's what a weird way to use your electricity yeah well i mean for me it's it's something to do i can watch i can i can appreciate their work oh absolutely and and sometimes people running out into the hurricane force winds (laughs) with their phone because well and some people aren't yeah not smart like just stay indoors In other news, the FBI is reportedly investigating whether Sputnik, a government-funded news agency in Russia, is operating in the U.S. as an undeclared propaganda arm of the Kremlin. 
This according what? to Yahoo News. Russia's not involved in the U.S. Agents in have already questioned a former White House correspondent for the news agency this month. He confirmed to Yahoo News, if the FBI determines that Sputnik is operating as such, it could be in violation of the Foreign Agents Registration Act, which was created in 1938, written to combat the influence of Nazis in the United States hmm? during World War II. Yeah, huh. Wow. Yahoo News also reported that federal agents have had their hands on thousands of emails and documents from the news agency, which were allegedly provided by Andrew Feinberg, the former reporter who took the material before he was fired from Sputnik last spring. Feinberg told Yahoo News that he sat for questioning for more than two hours on September 1st, during which he answered questions about Sputnik's internal structure, editorial process, and funding, among other things. Huh. Sputnik. Still making history. It was a satellite or yeah. space probe. Now it may or may not have had a monkey in it. Now they did it's that. a political probe. Was it that dog? I can't remember which probe it was because they sent up a dog at one point. Sputnik, yeah. Yeah, well, yeah. Spudnik. And now that dog, he can be sent on Guardians of the Galaxy. Oh, really? He's, really? He's on a spaceport. He's, tele, he's telepathic now. Hmm. Oh, wow. Yeah. No. He yeah. runs around a little little Soviet Union space Hey, I suit. think that's our th- second or third Sorry. movie reference. We got more coming up. Uh, seven people shot to death late Sunday at a Dallas Cowboy watch party inside a home in Plano, Texas, the Dallas Morning News reports. The suspect gunman was killed by a police officer who responded to a 911 call. Two others were wounded, but few details have been released on their injuries. The newspaper reports the shooting may have been sparked by a domestic dispute. The homeowners listed in public records reportedly sought a divorce in July, so there's all, all sorts of different oh, ramifications. Um, I learned when I spent my time in Texas, when the Cowboys are on TV, you do not bother people. Yeah, you, wow. used, you used to try to knock doors and bring them the gospel. There was a, a, a visceral reaction Get to, out to of interrupting here. a Cowboys game. Well, you, they're watching America's team. <clears throat> Correct. And depending on whether they had an early game, if they had an early game, then like church was like, you see all these church services, like early day because the cowboy game, oh, yeah. you know, that kind of thing, because you're trying to get out before what, the kickoff. What is the order again? Is it um, God first, uh-huh. Cowboys second, uh-huh. or Cowboys first, God second? Depends on kickoff. Well, when you're moving time. the time of church, I think the message is loud and clear. And in <laughs> many times, so true. It's, it's seen as God's team. So it's, it's one <laughs> oh, of the yeah. same, right? Well, so yeah. So the church would have like a potluck to watch the game. That was church right. for the day. They're just trying to get people not to skip church for the week because of football. So they're but trying to fight football. If you could talk a little religion, you know, at the yeah. tailgate party. Yeah, there's halftime. There's plenty of commercial breaks. You just have a blessing and, over the food. Yeah. Wow. It was really quite an interesting thing to see. It is a church. And finally, the Stephen King adaptation from uh, Warner Brothers shattered records over the weekend, earning $117 million from 4,000 locations. It. The movie It. What It? it? Not only is It now the largest ever opening for a horror movie and the largest September opening of all time, the film more than doubled the earning of the previous record holders. Before this weekend, Paranormal Activity 3 had the biggest horror opening with $52 million from 2011. (laughs) The highest September debut overall was Hotel Transylvania 2 that had $48 million. Hold on. The biggest horror movie opening? Was... Paranormal Activity 3. Yeah, but that's... The biggest opening in general... Ever. ...was Hotel Transylvania 2, which was like, it's a cartoon. Which was also horrific. Yeah, it's a horrible movie. Why was that the biggest opening? Because they don't release movies really in September. School starting... It's kind of a dump heap. There's a lot of football happening, so people are really excited that way, and so people stay away from the theaters. Yeah. You start getting the bigger movies in October, November, December, so they put Hotel Transylvania 2, which is an Adam Sandler 
cartoon, which my <sighs> son loves, but it's horrible. It's, oh. a, it's a horrible movie. But it, it held the record <laughs> since 2015. Wow. So they put an actual movie out that people were interested in. It made a ton of money and it set all these records. Unbelievable. But a clown. I, my wife and I were so close to going to a movie this weekend. Not that one. Should have seen Logan Lucky. Yeah, I'm going to go check that out now. I've watched the trailer, so I'm good. I'm not like Terry. Like I didn't watch the trailer 15 times and then order tickets. <laughs> well, I didn't for that movie like either. Three months ahead of time. Well, that's only specific masterpieces. Give me, give me, give me one example. Anything that says Marvel on it, I'll be there. Wow. Well, not any. Three months ahead of time. Out of their, what, 16 movies they made, there was one movie I had I did not see in the theater. Which one? The second Thor movie. Oh, I still haven't seen that. My By son, the way. My son was being birthed, so I was busy. Uh, I heard a story about a friend. Uh-oh, a friend? And Thor. I won't name names, Ooh. but her name's Michelle Nielsen. Okay. And we were out to dinner, and she's her husband said she was medicated because she had just had... She was sick. She just had, oh, she just had her, like, some molar pulled or something. Right. And uh, she was high as a kite Mm. on her drugs. Oh, nice. And when they were watching Thor for some reason, Mm. and Thor came on and she said something to the effect of, "Um, I want him. Oh, wow. (laughs) Nice. (laughs) And so. She blames the drugs, right? Yeah. Okay. So now the husband. He's he, he's already Chris is his name is now dressing up as Thor this Halloween. So Chris has Wait. competition from Chris Helmsworth, yeah. the actor. Who uh-huh. plays There's Thor. something about Chris. A lot of the Chrises are quite the heartthrob no, he, these this, days. This Chris is a total heartthrob. But what do you do when your wife's like, I want, I want? I don't think she said I would want him. She said I want that. Wow. Chris Hemsworth, Chris or the, or Pratt, maybe, maybe Chris, Chris Pine. There's Chris one more Chris Evans. Chris Evans, Captain that's America. The one. Wow. It's a lot of Chris. Chris Christie. Chris Kringle. That's a different Chris. Not necessarily. Ruth's Chris. That's a restaurant. Ooh, yeah. Mm-hmm. I want that. Which I is want weird. That. There's too many S's in that name. Yeah. Seems like you're, you're mispronouncing something. Ruth Chris. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So anyway, I don't know what you do, but we're working with him now. Okay. In private sessions. Well, you know, you, you do what you can. Keep them together, man. You know, I'm sure if he goes online, he can figure out the Chris Hemsworth workout. Mm, yeah. At least his body can look like Chris Hemsworth. Yeah. He just wears a, re- a white or a white-haired wig, right? Like a blondish no, wig. That's his hair. Well, they cut it. For no, the new I'm talking. Movie. This Chris just has to wear a blonde oh. wig and then carry a hammer. Well, you can't carry any hammer. You carry the fake Thor hammer. It's with... not fake. It's real. What it's, about like a just, children's mallet? You just make it out of a pool noodle. Mjolnir is not a fake hammer. Here well, we go. By the way, I think that's crafted... the fourth movie reference. It is crafted by. By by dwarves, in we, their minds we call them little people. No, that's what they're called in the show. No, yeah. midgets are called little people. I'm sorry. Can I not say that? I don't think so. Sorry. Um, Thor. Yes. So I didn't see that one. You I actually saw... knew the name of his hammer, Mjolnir. Who doesn't know that name? Me. Me. Okay. Well, that's his name, Mjolnir. And and on it, you it says you must be worthy to wield. Mjolnir. If you, if you, oh, he brother. is not Thor. His name is not Thor if he doesn't have the hammer. So what isn't makes your you, name Thor? His name is Odinson. Oh. So He's what, the son of Odin. What makes you worthy? Like, don't lie. Kiss your mother. Good night. Clean your room. Depends. Go to church. Eat when your the vegetables. Are playing. <laughs> it depends. His hammer actually gets destroyed in the next movie because he wasn't worthy. 
Speaking well, of not being worthy, did you hear the, that Jeff didn't set up chairs for church this Sunday? This really? Last Sunday? That's yeah. so bad. Didn't even you set must up. set up the chairs. Yeah. Because then all these people show up. And you then... wouldn't be able to lift Thor's mule near deer. Mm-hmm. Hammer. Anyway. Uh, Jeff, do you have any headlines for us? Give us one. Give us. Let's talk Australian surfer. I mean, this is a lucky – this is one lucky surfer. In our empty news headlines, I mean, it's bad enough to be a surfer. It's it's worse though when you got a shark chasing. You. Absolutely, we just had a conversation with my daughters yesterday who were asking about sharks. Are sharks real? And we said, uh, yeah, they're definitely they're real. Totally. Real. But if you ever come across one, just start punching it in the eyes or the nose. Yeah, that's so much easier said than done. Yeah. So yeah, like you said, this surfer, uh, all he all he ended up getting was a, a scratch on his back, a torn wetsuit, and teeth marks in his board. Whoa! He was attacked by a shark on Tuesday off an Australian beach. Marcel Brundler, 37, estimated the shark that grabbed his board was a 10-foot great white shark. What? He was surfing southwest of the Victoria State Capital, Melbourne, and uh, Mr. Brundler said he punched the shark before making his escape by catching a wave. Why I so the wave, bunk. thank goodness for that. <laughs> and then he caught a wave. Yeah. So uh, he real he said I realized fairly quick because it was more than half a meter wide with a massive dorsal fin and it looked at me. Then it kind of dived off, came back and circled me and took a fair notch out of my board, circled me again. Oh. Then it got me on my wetsuit. It got me on my hip. Luckily, it's just a little scrape on my skin. Mr. Brundler said that he punched the shark, then rode a wave away. I was shouting and punching it while it attacked me. I was really, really lucky this wave popped up out of nowhere. Unsaved by the wave. The wave save. The wave save. And But how do you catch a wave? It's not like getting on a bus. You have to paddle, right, and kick to catch the wave. So every time he put his arm in, he could lose an arm. So what you need is have like a have some sort of a necklace that has a sharp, jagged edge to it mm-hmm. that you could use as a weapon. Well, like a shark's tooth. Yes. Just oh, wouldn't sh- that just, be ironic? That's why if I surf, I always oh. wear a shark's tooth hanging from my necklace. I love the irony of that. Yeah, wouldn't that be great if you could defeat the shark with its own tooth? Yeah. This is what it feels like. If you wiggle a shark tooth back and forth, they come out really easily. So just while he's opening his mouth, wiggle a tooth, get one out, and then poke him in the eye. Yeah, they come out so easily because they have about, you know, several hundreds in reserve. Yeah, that's exactly right. <laughs> oh, that is terrifying. Well, he made it, folks. So just remember, you go for the ice, punch a shark. Uh, or, hey, how about just don't get in the water altogether? That's my vote. Tons of fun. Tons of uh, great stories as well. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. Whenever we worry about what to eat, how to love, or simply how to be happy, we are worrying about how to lead a good life. No goal is more elusive. In How to Be a Stoic, philosopher Massimo Pellucci offers Stoicism, the ancient philosophy that inspired the great emperor Marcus Aurelius, as the best way to attain it. Stoicism is a sensible philosophy that focuses our attention on what is possible and gives us, a, uh, gives us perspective on what is uh, unimportant. 
Um, and so today to talk about it is Massimo Pellucci, and we appreciate you, Massimo. Thank you for being with us today and giving us this uh, this this lesson on stoicism. Oh, it's a pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. So talk to us, first of all, kind of, I guess, set the table for us. What What is Stoicism, and, and, and who are some of the Stoic philosophers that, that we would know about? So I think of Stoicism as the Western equivalent of Buddhism. The two philosophies are very similar. They, they both are concerned with uh, uh, reducing pain in your life, to uh, controlling your negative emotions and developing and nurturing positive ones uh, so that you're uh, useful to the rest of, of humanity. Uh, they evolved independently. At about the same time, Stoicism started out uh, in, in ancient Athens about a couple hundred years after Buddhism started out in India. So, and, they, and they did come about under very similar sort of social and political circumstances, a lot of turmoil, really a, a time in human history that wasn't really that different from Today, where, where a lot of people feel that life is complicated, it's out of control, things happen that we don't really uh, affect uh, very much, and this causes stress, and we don't know how to deal with it. Um, the basic idea of Stoicism is that, um, well, there's two basic ideas. One is the so-called dichotomy of control. Uh, this uh, notion that certain things are under your control, other things are not under your control. And you may be able to influence them, but they're ultimately not under your control. And that the best thing you can do in life to reduce your suffering and to, in fact, being more effective at living your life is to focus your attention on the things that are, in fact, under your control and essentially completely ignore the rest. Hmm. And uh, maybe we can talk about how that translates into, into practice uh, in a minute. But that's one of the fundamental ideas. The other fundamental idea is that uh, the point of human life is to use reason to improve social living. And the reason for that is because we're reasonable animals. We're the only animal, animals that are really capable of, of engaging in, in reasoned discourse. Of course, that doesn't mean we're reasonable all the time. In fact, we're probably not reasonable most of the time, but we're capable of using rationality. We're capable of using reason. And, and we are inherently social animals. We depend on other people. So whenever we do something that improves our society, our own lives actually become better. Fascinating. And it's um, some of its practitioners maybe talk about who historically who was practicing this philosophy. So the philosophy started in 300 BCE uh, with Zeno of Sidium, which is modern day Cyprus. And Zeno was a merchant. Um, he's, uh, he lost uh, almost everything he had in a, in a shipwreck. And he got to Athens, uh, you know, not knowing exactly what to do. And he, he entered into a bookshop and he started reading a book about Socrates. And he asked the, the bookseller, you know, where can I find a philosopher? And the bookseller said, well, there's one right outside the door. Just go and talk to him. And uh, Zeno did. And the, the guy in question was Cratus, a cynic philosopher. And um, Zeno started uh, studying philosophy first with Cratus and then with other people. And then eventually he started his own school which was called the, Stoic, the Sto- Stoicism because they met in a public market, which was called the Stoapoikile, the, the painted porch, hmm. in the middle of Athens. And so Zeno was the first of the Stoics. Um, then after that, some of the most famous ones are Seneca, who was a uh, Roman senator, and he was the uh, advisor to the emperor Nero. Um, and then uh, Marcus Aurelius, of course, who was the, the emperor philosopher in the second century in Rome. And a guy named Epictetus, uh, which is actually the main protagonist of my book, uh, Epictetus was a really fascinating 
uh, character. He studied out his life in um, Hierapolis, which is in modern-day Western Turkey, as a slave. In fact, his name really means the one who is enslaved. Mm. And, um, and then he was bought by a new master in, uh, and brought to Rome. In fact, it was in Nero's uh, court as well, just like Seneca. Uh, eventually, since he was a bright guy, he was freed um, by, by his master. He was given freedom, and he studied uh, teaching philosophy. Uh, eventually, he was also exiled by the emperor Domitian, a later emperor Domitian, because lots of Roman emperors did not like philosophers, especially the Stoics, because they were, as we would put it today, uh, they had a habit of uh, speaking truth to power, and that never goes well with power. Um, so Epictetus was kicked out of Rome. He went to Nicopolis in western uh, Greece, reestablished the school, which became one of the most famous schools in the ancient world. The later emperor, Adrian, became a friend and, and, and started visiting often. So Epictetus was incredible because he went from being the lowest rank of, uh, of Roman society, a slave, to being one of the most famous and successful teachers in the entire ancient world. Hmm. And it's i guess i guess the philosophy itself stoicism has influenced religion also it's influenced um uh i, I guess certain types of therapy talk about that because it, it really is it almost seems like it's it's having a major revival right now it is and the funny thing is that uh, the original version of stoicism kind of sort of dwindled uh near the third or fourth century you know but with with the end of the Roman Empire, essentially, like like many other uh, ancient Greek and Roman philosophies. But then it kind of stayed in the background. First of all, it influenced Christianity. Uh, a lot of the ideas that, uh, uh, from th- that, that we're familiar with from uh, Stoicism, actually, uh, that's because the early Christian writers took them on board and sort of you know changed them and, and, and adapted it to Christianity. But they're essentially the same ideas. So, for instance, I mentioned that... Um, earlier, the dichotomy of control. That sounds a lot, if you if you uh, think about it, like the serenity prayer, mm. which is, uh, you know, told at the beginning of uh, 12-step organization meetings. And that's because the serenity prayer, in fact, is essentially the modern version, Christian version, of the Stoic dichotomy of control. Uh, the early Christian uh, fathers and theologians were strongly influenced by Stoicism. Um, St. Augustine, for instance, even Paul, even St. Paul, uh, at some point, Paul, Paul knew Seneca's brother, and he talks in, and he writes about Stoicism in the letter to the Romans. Um, and then later on in the Middle Ages, Thomas Aquinas, probably the most influential uh, Middle Age, uh, middle, uh, medieval philosopher, Christian philosopher, uh, took a lot of the of the basic ideas of Stoicism on board. In fact, the man Epictetus wrote actually one of uh, Epictetus' students. Epictetus did not write anything, but one of his students, Arian, brought down a bunch of his lectures. And there is a, a little compendium, a little manual uh, that um, by Epictetus that was put together by Arian. And that manual was actually used as a training manual in, uh, in um, uh, medieval monasteries by Christian monks, hmm. uh, so throughout the Middle Ages. So then we get to modern times, and then, as you say, you mentioned modern therapy. So at the beginning of the 20th century, uh, psychotherapy sort of split into two major branches. On the one hand, we have what one might call the existential branch. That's basically Freudianism, Jung, and you know people like that, sort of the so-called deep psychology. The other branch is what I would call the logo uh, therapeutic branch. So these, these are uh, approaches to uh, psychotherapy that are very much based on, on reasoning and on you know figuring out uh, what it is that is happening to the uh, to the patient in terms of sort of using his, his rationality and, and, and approaching his problems or her problems that way. That branch was strongly influenced by uh, Stoicism. In fact, 
a number of the early versions of things like logotherapy, rational emotive behavioral therapy, and cognitive behavioral therapy, uh, they imported a number of Stoic techniques because Stoicism was not just a philosophy. I mean, it was mostly a philosophy, but it also came with a number of techniques for how to deal with uh, day-to-day in, uh, problems. And, uh, and these techniques have been adapted, adopted first and then adapted by uh, a number of modern uh, psychotherapists. Just to give you an example, uh, Seneca wrote a wonderful book uh, called On Anger. And if you go uh, today still to the website of the American Psychological Association and you check their, their section on anger management, it basically reads like Seneca. It's, it's, almost, really? you know, it's 80% of, of what Seneca wrote. Unbelievable. And, and then, too, a name that a lot of people have heard is Viktor Frankl, who was yeah. an Austrian psychiatrist captured by the Nazis, thrown into Auschwitz. Um, and then a lot of – and he, he, he was really, I think, deeply based in logos therapy, wasn't he? That's right. He, uh, in fact, the, the term logotherapy is, uh, is um, attached to what uh, uh, Viktor Frankl did after uh, World War II, and he was one of the early, early post-war versions of these cognitive behavioral therapies. And yes, uh, Frankl's approach is very, very similar uh, to uh, the Stoic approach in particular because it includes two uh, components. One is, again, some a version of the dichotomy control. Uh, you, you know, you need to figure out what it is that you can uh, act on and what, what is, is, in fact, is outside of your control. And the other one is a strong orientation toward helping others. Uh, stoicism, uh, there, there's a number of misconceptions about stoicism, one of which is that it's about suppressing emotion, uh, emotions, and the other one is, you know, sort of like going through life with, like, like Mr. Spock from Star Trek. Um, and the other one, which is related, that, that you should be just... just uh, keep a stiff upper lip and, and deal with things, you know, endure things. Those are distortions of stoicism, and, and Frankel uh, understood it very well, and Albert Ellis, uh, who is the originator of rational emotive behavior therapy, also understood it very well. Uh, it, it isn't about suppressing emotion. It's rather about reorienting your emotional spectrum. You want to get away from the disruptive, disruptive unhealthy emotions such as anger, fear, uh, hatred and things like that, and instead nurture your positive emotions, uh, love and, and concern for other people and a sense of justice and a sense of joy uh, about about the universe. That's powerful. Um, again, we're speaking with Massimo Pellucci, who is also um, he interesting background. He has an ev- a Ph.D. in evolutionary biology and also a Ph.D. in philosophy and is currently the K.D. Irani professor of philosophy at the City College of New York. Uh, Massimo, give us an example, a taste of how um, how we could manage and, and do some of this kind of reorienting of our emotion using Stoicism and, and I guess some example of where we need to manage our emotions more effectively in today's day and age. So part of it, the, the way this, I'll give you a personal example that I described in, in, in my book. It's just a, a small example, but I give you a good idea, I think, of, of how the thing works. So one of the things that you do is to you, you practice a certain number of exercises and a certain, certain number of certain meditations. And uh, in fact, the last chapter of my book is, is, is a list uh, and a guide to some of these exercises. Now, these exercises are in part exercises in visualization. So, um, so this is, you, you, you meditate from time to time about, you know, let's say that you are uh, about to embark in something that is problematic and potentially might not go well, like a job interview, for instance, um, then, then, or a date. Let's say you're, on a first, you're going on a first date. 
then uh, what you do is you engage in, in what the, the, the Romans call a premeditatio malorum, which um, basically means you know, thinking about bad outcomes. And so you, you close your eyes, and for a few minutes you imagine that scene in detail, and then you say, okay, what is the worst thing that can happen about this, and how am I going to handle this? The point of this exercise is twofold. First of all, you become mentally prepared to deal with the worst possible scenario. The, the, one of the things that, it's, that human beings are really not good at is to respond on the spur of the moment to situations that you did not expect. So if instead you're mentally prepared, you say, okay, well, if this is going to go that way, here's, here's how I'm going to behave. This is what I'm going to say. The other one is that most of the times, not always, but most of the times, in fact, the worst scenario does not happen. And, and so that you prepare for the worst, but in fact, you're actually going to be, uh, you know, happy and, and, and relieved because the actual thing went, went better uh, than, than you might have um, thought. So let me give you an example, a practical example. This, this happened actually when I was reading, sorry, when I was writing the book uh, last year, I was on sabbatical in, in Rome. And um, uh, one of the, my premeditatio malorum had always been, you know, so what if I lose something that isn't, that is, uh, you know, either annoying to lose or even important, um, like you know, an object that I care about, or uh, or you know, or, or some money or whatever it is. And so, occasionally, I do that sort of stuff. Okay, well, then I uh, one night I, I get out of my apartment, I get on the subway in Rome. I was about to meet my brother and his wife to go for dinner and a movie, and something awkward was happening. I was being pushed from the front from somebody, even though the subway was not really that crowded. It took me a fraction of a second to realize that that was be, I was being distracted and somebody else was lifting my my um, wallet from my mm. pocket. So I turned around and I caught I, I just in time to see the doors closing and the, the guy went off with with my wallet. And you know normally um, years ago I would have been pissed off and I would have been really upset and that would have been you know ruined my entire evening. I would have thought well first of all I'm stupid I, I'm from Rome I should know these things that should be more careful. And second, you know, now it's about, oh, the credit cards that I lost and the driver license and the money that was in there and so on and so forth. So normally that would have been, you know, the, the kind of reaction you would have. Because of my training, on the other hand, my mind immediately went to, okay, uh, is, this has happened. Now, is this under your, under your control? Can you actually do anything to remedy the situation right now? Can you go after the, 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 the thieves or can, can you get out of the subway and somehow find them? And the answer, of course, was, no, I can't. Okay, well, then put it out of your mind. Next, what is under your control? Uh, well, to send a text message to my credit card companies and block the, the credit cards, which I did immediately. Uh, what else is under my control? Uh, well, to call the DMV and get a replacement license, which I did from the subway. Uh, even though I was in Italy, I called DMV in the United hmm. States, and we said, yep, sure, we can send you that in a, in a couple of days. So the practical problems were solved, and I said, okay, well, how much did I lose? There were a couple of hundred dollars, let's say, in, in the wallet. Well, is this going to make an impact on my uh, you know, personal finances? No. It's, you know, it's too bad, but it, there's nothing I can do about it, and it's not gonna, I'm not going to worry about it. By the time I walked out of the subway, that was just five minutes later, to meet my brother, I was perfectly fine, serene. I greeted uh, my brother and his wife. We went to movies. We had a nice dinner. And he almost di didn't figure out that something happened. At some point, he was just saying, so what happened today? I said, oh, well, you know, I was in the subway and I lost my wallet. And <laughs> that is the power of this kind of practice, that you, you sort of – it's not a question of not caring because, of course, you do care. You do about care. The thing you, right? But, but it's about, okay, yeah, but, but what can I do about it? What can I actually do about it? 
the Stoics thought that it is not a good idea when something bad happened to you uh, to, on top of that, sort of get upset or, or, or angry or anxious about it because it's like adding insults to injury. Already something bad happened to you. Why do you want to make it worse by reacting in a way that it's not going to be helpful and, in fact, it's just going to make you miserable? Yeah. There is no point in it. That is so. But of course, it takes practice. I mean, it's not something that can happen from one day to another. Yeah, right. Which is why, it, like, it seems to work really well. I mean, to, to parallel it with something like Buddhism, it's a practice. It's a, it, it, but but it, it does take time. But it does eventually become like you. Again, we are speaking with Massimo Pellucci, and we are going to take a break. Come back, continue discussing his book, "How to Be a Stoic: Using Ancient Philosophy to Live a Modern Life." And really how to manage a little bit better your emotion, how to uh, recognize where you have control and influence and where you don't and how to turn your life um, and really empower yourself, it sounds like, with, um, with some, some, some more, I guess, insight, some more power. Up next, we'll continue the journey. This is The Matt Townsend Show. We are talking about Stoicism, an ancient uh, philosophy, uh, parallels in a way uh, Buddhism, but uh, I guess more from the West. Uh, our guest is Massimo Pellucci, and he is the author of the book, How to Be a Stoic, uh, Using Ancient Philosophy to Live a Modern Life. He also is a professor, um, currently the K.D. Irani Professor of Philosophy at the City College of New York also has his own degree in in evolutionary biology as well as a degree in philosophy. Massimo, again, thank you for your time and being with us today. Absolutely, a pleasure. Talk to me about uh, another idea, I guess, stoic concept of universal causality and how we can uh, use yeah. that in our lives today. Yes, we can. Um, so the, the stoics thought that in order... So the, the main point of Stoic philosophy, just like actually the main point of a lot of ancient philosophy, and uh, including Buddhism uh, in the East, was to figure out how to live a good life, uh, meaning a life that it was worth living, the kind of life that you get to the end of it, you look back and you say, yeah, that, that was worth it, that was a good thing. Now, uh, the Stoics thought that in order to do that, you have to understand a couple of other things, what they called the physics and what they call the logic. Now, the logic was uh, essentially the, a, a discipline that tells you how to reason well. So it, was, it included what we today mean by logic in, as moderns, but also so in general sort of good reasoning. So we, it would also include like cognitive science, you know, aware, uh, awareness of, of biases and things like that. And the reason was that because you, you can't, the idea was that you can't live a good life, figure out what a good life is if you don't reason correctly, if you don't reason well. The other bit that they studied, the other discipline that they studied was physics. But by physics, by that, by that term, they meant not just physics as we understand it today, but really the full range of natural sciences, metaphysics, and even theology. The idea was that in order to live a good life, you have to have some idea of how the world actually works. And that brings me to the universal causality. So the Stoics thought that, uh, uh, first of all, they, they were pantheists. They thought that God is the same thing as the universe. God is, is 
inside the universe. He's, he's everywhere. So literally, we're bits and pieces of God. Okay. And if we are, however, the universe, all the bits and pieces of the universe are, are connected by a universal web of causality. Things happen as a result of other things. And if you take that seriously, it means, of course, that you yourself are part, uh, a little part of this universal you know, web of causality. So whatever you do is caused by other things uh, and causes, in, in turn, other things to happen. So you, you're part of, of this organic universe, uh, and you do your part, essentially, in, in the doings of that universe. Now, the interesting thing is that the Stoics, particularly uh, Chrysippus, who was the third head of the, of the Stoa, the third head of the school of, of uh, Stoicism, uh, had these really interesting ideas about causality. They thought that human action, they, they didn't talk about free will. Free will is kind of a, a little bit more you know, later uh, concept, uh, basic, basically comes from Christian uh, medieval theology. But they did have a, a, a word that is actually used even today in modern psychology. It's volition. Uh, volition is the ability of human beings to make decisions, right? And so they thought, okay, well, where does that come from? How do how do human beings make decisions? And um, Chrysippus came up with this wonderful uh, analogy that is uh, that, that I like to tell because he makes the point very clearly. He said, consider a cylinder, right, the, the solid geometrical figure. Now, if you have a cylinder in front of you and you push it, and then I ask you, you know, and the cylinder is going to roll, yeah. Uh, the, and then I ask you, well, what made the, the cylinder roll? Your first, uh, you know, intuitive answer is going to be, well, that's because I pushed it. In other words, there was an external force, an external cause that started the cylinder moving. But, but Chrysippus said, yeah, but that's only part of the answer, isn't it? Because part of the reason the cylinder is rolling is because it is a cylinder. That is, it's the internal constitution of the cylinder. If instead of a cylinder it were a cube, for instance, it wouldn't roll. It would just bump it. Uh, and if it were something else, it wouldn't you know, respond at all. So the reason the cylinder is, is rolling is both because of the application of an external force and because of the internal mechanism, the internal causality of the cylinder itself. And Chrysippus thought that that's the way human volition works as well. That is, when we do things, uh, we do things for a combination of external and internal causes. Let's say uh, that last night at some point I, I got up from my couch and I went to the refrigerator and got a beer. Uh, now, you could say, well, why, why did Massimo do that? Well, it's a combination of external and internal causes. For instance, I was thirsty, and I had knowledge of the fact that there, there is a beer in my refrigerator and so on and so forth. So, so there's a series of things. Some of them are physical. Some of them come from outside. Some of them are psychological. They come from the inside. And that's how the Stoics thought that the whole thing works. And a major point, a major objective of Stoic uh, philosophy, especially Stoic practice, was to improve your ability to make decisions. Uh, they used, the, as I said, the, the word translates in, as volition. The Greek word was prohairesis, and prohairesis was the idea, uh, the, the ability to make, uh, to arrive at, at right judgment, to to arrive at the good decisions about your life. Hmm. So a lot of Stoic training is about improving your ability to make right decisions. Give us, uh, we have about maybe a minute and a half left. What would you say, what's, what's one thing that we could all implement today or one technique that you've got that we could implement today that would help us make a, a bigger decision in our life, where we should go to school, how, you know, who we should marry? What's a process we could, we could use that might incorporate some of the things you've already taught us? 
Well, other than the dichotomy of control that I, that I talked earlier, I think the, the most powerful, one of the most powerful techniques that Stoics have available is the evening philosophical diary. So every night, what I do is before going to bed, uh, I follow Seneca's advice, um, and I sit down at my desk uh, or on the couch, and I take a few minutes to review my day. And then I write down a few notes, a few comments on, on my own actions and what happened to me during the day. And I ask myself three questions, which are the questions that Seneca used to ask himself 2,000 years ago. First of all, what did I do, what did I do wrong? And the point of that is not to indulge into self-bashing or regret or something like that. It's just to learn. If I did something wrong, I want to learn from it so that tomorrow I'm not going to do it again. Mm. The second question is, what did I do right uh, and the reason I'm asking myself that is because Stoicism is a very forgiving and especially self-forgiving philosophy. Again, you don't bash yourself. You don't say yourself, oh, bad Stoic or bad person or whatever it is. You just learn from it. And so when you did something right, it's okay for you to pat yourself on the back and say, hey, that was a good thing. And then the third question is perhaps the most crucial one, which is, what could I have done differently? Because a lot of situations in our lives are recurring ones. You know, we, we, we deal with very similar situations or variations of similar situations over and over and over. And the more we learn from it, the more we can ask ourselves, okay, well, that didn't go particularly well today, but it's going to happen again. When and if it happens again, how am I going to deal with it? What, what am I going to do different since the last time I, I, it didn't work very well? And I find this powerful. It, it creates a record of your own decisions and thought processes, and you can go back and reread it and, and, and meditate on it, and it does really make your life um, better. You make makes you more efficient in making decisions. And one more thing that it does, as Seneca pointed out, it says that, you know, if you start doing that on a regular basis every night, then during the day, you will, in fact, discover that you, you pay much more attention to what you're doing because you know that at night you have to talk to somebody, your own conscience. Right. Uh, to whom you can't lie. Yeah. You can't hide anything from it. I love that, Massimo. That is such a – it's interesting because we, we, we see that practice being done a lot of times, you know, after, you know, your company does a new product release or whatever, continue, stop, start, what's working, what's not. But to actually think of it like you just did, we have to face our, our conscience every day. And let the conscience kind of be the guide. Powerful, power stuff, powerful stuff. Massimo Pellucci is his name. The name of the book is How to Be a Stoic, Using Ancient Philosophy to Live a Life, uh, to Live a Modern Life. And uh, power, isn't there power in, in thought and wisdom, really, um, from all the ages? Uh, powerful stuff. Interesting. We're going to take a break, my friends. Continue the journey and continue giving the tools you need to live a healthier, happier life. Up next, we'll have more empty news. Stick with us. As if uh, it wasn't difficult enough in Florida with Hurricane Irma passing through and, you know, leaving a major wake of disaster. Now there's reports coming out in our empty news segment that they may be the worst drivers in the United States again. Yeah, this is according to Smart Asset for the second year in a row. So it's not just this year, it's last year. Drivers in Florida have been ranked the worst oh. in the entire country. Oh. 
In their annual rankings of states with the worst drivers, Smart Asset claims Floridians live up to their reputation for being bad drivers. According to the rankings, Floridians Google traffic tickets more than any other state and have the second <laughs> lowest number of insured drivers in the country. To compile its ranking, Smart Asset used num- a number of drivers, DUI arrests, people killed, and Google Trends and ticket searches. Top ten, the top ten states with the worst drivers. Yeah, Any guesses? Fair. Well, I, I think everybody thinks their state is in there. I think Utah should be in there. I think Utah should be in there. I think California should be in there. Oh, yeah. See, Utah, the, I had one of these days the other day where it seems like everybody and their mom is cutting you off. Yeah, what Just about everybody. their dad, too? Their dad, too. No, he's a good driver. Dads, dads cut people off all the time. <laughs> and then they... Then the kids, because they're like, don't make me pull over. By the way, if in case my parents are listening, that was no reflection on them. I meant mother and father in general. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so Florida is number one. There's yep. also Mississippi, Oklahoma, New Jersey. Really? Delaware. I didn't think wow. anything happened yeah. in Delaware. Alabama, also unfortunate. Vermont, Tennessee, Texas, and Nevada. Wow, I thought for sure. See, everybody thinks their state, that you've got the worst drivers. Well, you don't. Apparently, Florida does. But we love you, Florida, and uh, you'll probably have a lot of uh, need for your driving. There goes Jeff right there. That was a hit and run. That was crazy. Oh, it was a Florida license plate. (laughs) And a Delaware license plate. Weird. Imagine the odds. Well, we'll continue the journey with you folks, doing what we can to give you a leg up in life. This is the Matt Townsend Show. You're listening to us right here on BYU Radio. Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, friends, and top of the morning to you. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here, your coach, your guide on the side. Do you have any Irish in you? I'm just curious. Oh, you do. I have a a weenie, a teeny-weeny bit. (laughs) I don't know. I don't speak. I don't. I don't know. You don't speak Gaelish. I don't. Uh, yeah. Is that how you say it? Gaelish or Gaelic? Gaelic. I don't know. Yeah, you have got yeah. to put some phlegm in there. Um. Yeah, I got a, a wee bit of Irish in me. Uh, probably just about as much as the leprechaun that's magically delicious. They're mm. magically delicious. Yeah, just about that much. Hey, we have got so much to talk about. Pretty basic little uh, outline I've created for us today. Hurricanes, Hillary, and Ambassador Ivana Trump. Hmm. Did I thought you, you were going to go with 4-H's. <laughs> we're going to talk about 4-H. I was trying to, but I couldn't get Ivana Trump into uh, an H. Ivana Trump. Ivana. Uh, we'll get into all of this fun stuff. Plus, on top of it all, nostalgia. Okay, I'm going to give you a test, Terry. Yes. By the way, I forgot to tell you, Terry's here. Terry South, Jeffrey oh. Simpson, the gang's all here, ready to have fun. Listen to this song, Terry, hmm. and I want you to think of what comes to your mind when you hear it. Little Beatles for you. 
You said it. So this is conjuring up something in your brain, I can tell. Your eyes are kind of shifting. Hmm. Your brow furrowed. <laughs> Jeff's licking his lips <laughs> for some reason. You know so, what I think of when I hear this your mind, song? Jeffrey? I imagine uh, Peter McNichol and Rowan Atkinson singing this song in the movie Bean. Bean, really? He sings this song as Mr. Bean. Oh, wow. That'd Actually, the only part that he sings is, suddenly. Oh, uh, yeah. And yeah. he sings it. Okay, so uh, does that make you feel good? Good memories? Yeah. It's a funny movie. Like warm all over? Yeah. Cozy? Mm-hmm. Like, like you're almost in a onesie rolling around on the floor in a nice okay, it's bare getting, blanket. It's getting weird now. Wow, yeah. Okay. How about you? How about you, Terry? What What are you feeling? I just saw this actually on the Wonder Years, I think. Really? Which episode? I don't know. My son and I were just watching, you know, random, not random, but just like, four, you know, you watch like two or three episodes. Yeah, yeah. A half yeah. hour, you just crank through them and they play this song because they're trying to tug on your heartstring. I see this song as manipulative. How's that? Wow. The Wonder Years, that's all about nostalgia. Oh, yeah, the whole it's, show. Exactly. So today we're talking about nostalgia. By the way, when you when you saw this with the Wonder Years, were you imagining that someday you could marry... Winnie what? Cooper. Winnie Cooper. What was her name, though? Was that her name on the show? Dana, Danica McKellar is the actress's yeah, name. Did you ever what, think... When I was a kid, maybe, sure. Yeah. I'm a little taken at the moment. You're you notice, now, you yeah. notice they showed less and less of her during a couple of key seasons because uh, she was taller than Kevin? Yeah. So they kind of wrote her out of the script for a few episodes there? Well, that happens when you're young. Yeah. And then there's that, that girl you fall in love with, and then all of a sudden she's a foot taller than you. And she can outrun you. <laughs> She's faster than you. So nostalgia is what we're talking about today. Is there, is there, is it healthy to have this nostalgic kind of run in your mind where could, you just go back to the day, yes, where you go back to yesterday and yeah. you just can't, you just don't give it up and you just keep living it. It depends. Over. Sometimes it's good to look back and have Over. good times, right? We yeah. talked about this yesterday with all those new game systems coming out of old video exactly. games that we used to play. In my opinion, when you do something like that, whether it's a movie or a video game, it's just never the same as when you were young. It, 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 you can't go back, or can you? And is there healthy ways to do it? And then is there a line that you just, once you've crossed it, then it's now unhealthy? Well, when you misremember, which was a... Yeah, a term they used when the baseball players are being interviewed about ten years ago by Congress. Someone goes, "I misremembered." <laughs> um, <clears throat> misremembered whether or not I took that illegal substance, <laughs> right? But when you misremember the past, yeah, and then you want to uh, somehow bring that past back, but the past wasn't what you thought it was, or the past is you're it's, we're incapable of ch- of achieving returning, yeah, to greatness. And, and you, or like it, that's one thing if you're a pro athlete too, right? That, I mean, that makes well. Like, that guy was trying not to admit the fact that he took, you know, yeah. steroids. But but when you're a high school athlete and you still keep talking about how you almost took state, yeah, like you were in the semis. Like I have a I have a letter jacket in my closet. Yeah, I think I wore it. Why don't you wear it more? I wore it like two or three times to actually in high school. Yeah, 
But it was this big, thick, heavy jacket. So mm-hmm. you're walking around school. It's hot in the school, right? They turn right. the heat on. Yeah, but you looked cool. I, yeah, but it was just the most uncomfortable thing, so I only wore it just a few times. Will you wear it for us tomorrow? It is a massive trophy. Wear no. it tomorrow. I we'll, post, it. we'll do a little no. Twitter post. I've no. got an In-N-Out Burger Letterman jacket that my wife won't let me wear. Ho, 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 so ho. I lettered in uh, fry cooking. You did. And, uh, yeah, drive through. Wow. Drive through voices. I, I would do I don't voices. I think they call that a Letterman jacket. It is a Letterman jacket. You can look it up online uh, right now. Uh, I think so they're just calling because you it, make something. Like, yeah. I mean, I didn't letter and fry cooking. <sighs> I said that to make myself feel better. But I actually do have the Letterman jacket. You never certified. Never certified on that. On that, they part didn't of the stitch kitchen? a letter onto my jacket. Let's just say. What did they stitch on your jacket? Your name. No, not even that. So really, it's not even your jacket yet. But they gave me the jacket. Well, they had to after you put all that grease on it. Hmm. So I actually think it can be healthy. To look is good. I, I think it, it can be better in a way to look back or try these things that you did when you were a kid and not get the same fulfillment out of it because you realize, hey, I, I, have, I live a fulfilling life right now. Absolutely. That was a great time that I had when I was younger. If you But can I don't do need that. that anymore. But if you can bring it from the past to the present and then live today, that's probably the healthy part. At some point, you just you got to let that football season go. Yeah. I mean, it was 30 years ago. We had our reunion and uh, we actually, not to brag, but our team took state. See? Is yeah. that good nostalgia? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It was great. Except the funny thing is, is... The, most of us don't talk about it anymore, but the football team still does. Yeah. But they were a part of that. So we're all proud. That was great. Now, it's fine to go to your reunion and have those sort of thoughts and that kind of thing. Yeah, but that if, was a day. That if, was one day. Say you're in a business meeting and you're like, you know, back when I was the state champion and you, this comes <laughs> up quite a bit, that might be a problem. Yeah. But again, too, I guess it depends where you live. Like if you are in Florida and you're the state champion in Florida and you were you know, one of the yeah. lead Players. At some point, that needs to kind of become something of your past. Yeah. Your cachet should go down a bit. Yeah. Once, uh, you shouldn't toss it out there and expect people to be like, all right, stay champ. Or if you're Uncle Rico, that Uncle would work Rico. as well. If coach would have put me in fourth quarter, we'd have been state champions, no doubt. No doubt in my mind. Little Napoleon Dynamite, Uncle Rico. No doubt. Who could have thrown the ball over the mountain, probably. That's what he said. How much you want to bet I can throw that football over them mountains? <laughs> Nostalgia, folks. We'll be getting to that again. Also, a little hurricane update, a little Hillary. She, her book's out, and she's starting to – some people say she's whining. Some people – I think it's actually pretty interesting insight into what she was thinking. I, I listened to 40-plus minutes of her discussing her book, and it's not wow. really whining. Uh-uh. It's more her just trying to, like, as everyone still trying, I think, trying to Makes wrap sense. their mind around what happened. Like, how did this happen? Yeah, yeah, I think there's a difference between whining and saying, no, seriously, how did this happen? No, like, seriously, seriously, you guys, seriously. I don't know how serious I can get. How did this happen, you guys? So we'll get to that. Plus, I do want to mention about Ambassador Ivana Trump. She was extended the offer to be the ambassador of Czechoslovakia, I believe. Hmm. So now all ex-wives are and didn't want possible it. or no? She didn't want it. She rejected what? it. We'll talk about that. Interesting stuff. But first to the headlines with Terry South. Terry, what's going on around the rest of the country? President Trump will travel to the U.S. Virgin Islands within the next week to see firsthand the damages of the territory after Hurricane Irma. Governor Kenneth Mapp said Monday the U.S. Virgin Islands took a heavy hit from the soup from the superstorm, which was a Category Five when it swept through the Caribbean. The aftermath left the territory like a war zone. Residents uh, told. Buzz 
BuzzFeed News with Congressional Representative Stacey Plaskett informing MSNBC that we've lost about 70% of our infrastructure and utility system on St. Thomas and all of our utility system on the island of St. John. President Trump will visit Florida on Thursday. The death toll from Hurricane Irma in the U.S. has doubled, reaching 22 following its destructive path through the Caribbean. Outside the U.S., at least 38 people were reported killed by the storm. More than 70 people were killed by Hurricane Harvey just days before uh, Irma hit. So that's kind of what we've been And honestly, how do they recover? I mean, too, did you see that? I mean, some of the these key, islands the Florida are now... The Florida Keys are just destroyed. They're brown. They're, they're just saying, brown. All the green right. from the island, gone. The Florida Keys, they're saying that 90% of the homes are damaged and 25% are just gone. Like, un, you got to tear them down, start over. Oh, my heavens. Wow. So it just it's crazy amount of destruction. We'll see more of that By with the By the way, the, uh, the, the cruise line industry, mm-hmm. all these people had trips to these islands. This is going to be – so you don't go. No. Am I safe to go Where would you stay? next August? Yeah, you'll be fine. Okay. Okay. You might want to check. Maybe, maybe you can go down there and plant some trees Yeah, bring something. some trees. <laughs> Representatives from Facebook and Twitter could be asked to testify before the Senate Intelligence Committee in the ongoing investigation into Russia's involvement in the 2016 election. Uh, Facebook admitted last week that it unknowingly sold $100,000 worth of ads to a Russian troll farm during the 2016 presidential election. On Monday, uh, additional reports had the Russians using fake identities to organize inflammatory protests in the United States and advertise them on Facebook. One of them was in Idaho Falls. Really? They had 40 people say they were interested, but only like four people showed up. So I'm not sure what the effectiveness of that was, but they were organizing. The Supreme Court on Tuesday blocked a federal appeals court ruling made last week that would have let refugees with support from resettlement agencies enter the United States despite President Trump's travel ban. About 24,000 people could be impacted by the ruling. Which was made without comment and by the five by and by five justices. The Supreme Court in June allowed Trump's executive order that barred certain people from Iran, Somalia, Sudan, Syria, uh, Libya, and Yemen from entering the U.S. to go through making an exception for those with bona fide relationships in the U.S. The justices are scheduled to hear the arguments over the legality of the executive order on October 10th. I like how they're not in session, but they're still adjusting their yeah. original ruling and i don't know we'll, i mean that we'll, that's, hopefully this all gets resolved and there's some sort of final decision does on it this. does it make more it seems like it would clarify when the supreme court does something it seems like it would clarify things yeah not really clarifying anything yet. no they keep muddling it up and so we'll see on august 10th when they hear the case what okay. they're going to do okay. and finally yes we've talked about fatbergs yeah they found a new one where? British engineers are saying they have launched a sewer war against a giant fatberg clogging London sewers. Thames Water Service officials said Tuesday it's likely to take three weeks to dissolve the outsized fatberg. They cautioned against expecting quick results as the fatberg is 250 yards long. Oh, my word. That's three soccer fields or the it's longer than the Tower Bridge. No way. Yeah, I saw a graphic showing the Tower Bridge is about 244 yards. This is 250 yards. Is the Tower Bridge made of fat? No, it's it's made of historic concrete. Loser. Um, and, as it say, or, and it weighs as much as 11 double-decker buses or just a little bit less than a blue whale. Don't you love Wow. <laughs> wow, that is big. That's a big... Blue whales are huge. The unsavory blob consists of uh, congealed, that's my favorite mm. word with this, wet wipes, diapers, fat, and oil. Uh, the administrator, Matt... Uh, what's his name? Uh, whatever. He's the administrator. says the fatberg is a total monster and taking a lot of manpower and machinery to remove it. 
as it is set hard. He said the task is basically like trying to break up concrete. Uh. This thing is solidified in a (laughs) a crazy way. Eight workers are using high-powered jet hoses to break up the blob before sucking it out into tankers for disposal at a recycling site. Oh, wow. You know what? It seems like you could just light it on fire. That's my thought. It's just oil and, and just paper, let it burn. so light it's it. It's just a big candle. Wasn't this the basis of the, the old 1950s film, The Blob? Probably. I think that was a fatberg. But The Blob was actually moving, right? It yeah, was mobile. It was a mobile. living entity of types. You don't yeah. want the fatbergs to start moving. We we did an entire um, expose yes. on fatbergs. <laughs> <laughs> and if you missed it, you need to go look it up. Because I'll, I'll put it out on Twitter. We had a it Fatberg expert. From Dublin, Ireland. I mean, it, you know how hard it is to find a Fatberg expert? And we found one. It was tough. It took me quite a while. But National, National Geographic had an article. Yeah. They quoted this guy. We found him. Then we had to cancel the interview because his wife's uh, water broke. That's right. <laughs> and then we had him on the a week later. Of. It was great. Speaking of Fatbergs. <laughs> <laughs> But anyway, yeah, that sounded gross. He found it uh, interesting that we were so like interested in this topic. He's no, like, it's why, why are you fascinated by this? And I go, have you seen the pictures? And he's like, oh, okay. I mean, well, it's National, a National Geographic was interested. Right? Oh yeah, yeah. This this one is crazy. How big it is? We love anything from the sewage world. <laughs> That's so bad. Isn't that weird? But the, again, this is this is something that our, only our show would bring you. I did see a description of the sewer being a Victorian era sewer pipe. Really? So it's small. So things just – there's not a lot of room to move things around. Yeah. Where, you know, more modern construction makes it bigger. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So they're just dealing with old pipes. Not not a problem. Not Something a problem. you can relate to, Matt. Speaking of old pipes. We call them old pipes. <laughs> the old Pied Piper. I um, Crazy thing I found about Hillary Clinton's book. Hmm. So Jason Chaffetz who is now um, Fox well, News contributor. Fox News contributor Jason Chaffetz used to be a congressman from Utah and was over the House uh, something committee. Investigative yeah. committee, yeah. Uh, on the way out of the inauguration of President Trump, Hillary Clinton walked up the stairs and shook Chaffetz's hand and they had a little uh, you know, conversation, a little private conversation i think she said she she shared some personal words with him he said hey nice nice coat and she said yeah. thanks or something thank you well she kind of dissed him in the book because she said that exchange she didn't realize that was jason chaffetz she thought that was reince Priebus. reince reince but didn't so take that reince didn't she sit in a committee with him or jason for like 11 hours yeah w- but, wouldn't you know well but your eyes get tired after a while Is that what it, okay and there's so many faces on Capitol Hill. I can't tell you how many times I've misremembered students' names here oh, at the yeah. show. That's why you don't you – don't, you just say, hey, buddy. No, I like – especially the girls. I'll think one girl is another girl and I – yeah, I can't uh, – Yeah, like I'll think one girl's Carissa. Yes. And then I'll think another girl's Carissa or Lauren. Well, we have two, Another girl's two. Lauren. If you say Lauren, you're pretty close because we have two. Yeah. And then we have Liana, but it's not Liana. I always call her Liana. Yeah. Then I correct. I say it both ways when I talk with her just to cover all my bases. Yeah. Even though I know it's one way. But we, it's not that we don't love them. It's just that there's so many of them. <laughs> so, and we've got so many other things that we're trying to remember Hillary and our Cl- brains don't work. Hillary Clinton said she was unaware basically. Didn't, didn't, of, know, it was, didn't know it was – she thought it was Ryan's. He's much taller. But he, then – He has a lot more hair than Ryan's. Yeah. 
I don't understand that. Yeah. And um, but you know, she she had had a very stressful right. month prior to that. And then you really? know, during the yeah. ceremony, people are trying to put on ponchos. If you remember that, it just kind of you know. People just confused. I mean, how she fun! Was I mean, really, and maybe it's not even true, but what a great diss! Oh yeah, like, oh, I, I don't unaware. even know who you are. <laughs> I thought you were right. By the way, Ivana Trump, apparently, according to the Daily Mail, which you know is oh yeah legit, uh, Ivana Trump says Donald asked her to be ambassador to the Czech Republic. Hmm. She turned him down because she did not want an eight to twelve job. Isn't that a weird phrase? Eight, eight to, to twelve, eight to twelve, like eight to noon. Who that, wouldn't is, want an eight to noon job? I've got an eight to noon job. It's as fantastic. do I. It's a great, great Love opportunity. It. Plus, you get a nap. So she turned down the chance to serve as ambassador. She said, "I like my freedom, and I want to do what I want to do. Go wherever I want to go with whomever I want." Hmm. That's so. She, by the way, hmm. she made that announcement at uh, New York's Fashion Week. Of oh, course, nice. of course, yeah, nice. So she doesn't. I mean, not everyone wants to be sure. She brought Ivanka to the world. Yes. I mean, like, and Donald Jr. and the other one. Eric? Eric. He just had a kid, apparently. <laughs> yeah, he did. Yeah, so he all did. three of those are from Aren't the they? same area? I don't know. I think they are. And then there, then there's the other one. The other one? Tiffany, Tiffany? The one everyone forgets? Yeah, and Tiffany's the one that- Justice for she's Tiffany. She's from the other mom. Um, I just Was that a Stranger I Things reference? This. Is that Marla? No, I don't know. You guys just went to a movie reference? No, there's a lot of people out there that wanna Barb. want justice for Tiffany because they feel like she's being snubbed here. Justice for Tiffany. But you have the three favored children, then yeah. like, Tiffany's off in law school But I, I thought Tiffany wanted to kind of be... Yes and no. Yeah. I mean, she's... I mean, if she looks at it, the others are getting in trouble. Like, Baron is just trying to hide. Yeah, the, the little kid. The Baron's he's loving trying. it, and I, I, Baron, I love Baron because he's he just gets to do whatever he wants to do. Do you think his middle name is Von? Baron Von Trump. Yes. But do you remember, like during the inauguration, all the other kids got some sort of like wardrobing? Yeah. And so Tiffany showed up, and they're like, "Oh, we don't have anything for you." Oh, <laughs> oh yeah, we forgot her. She, you know what? That's yeah. That's so kind I, of she's kind of been left out. There may be a Disney movie about this. Wow. The daughter that was left out. I'm guessing Disney, Disney is not going to dedicate a film to Donald Trump. Tiffany Files. Really? Yeah. Check it out. We, we, that's it. That's all you need to know. Poor Tiffany. I forgot. I didn't even think about that. Up next, folks, we're going to be talking about the psychological benefits and trappings of nostalgia. You won't want to miss it. This is the Matt Townsend Show. You're listening to us right here on BYU Radio. Thank you, Babs. Little Barbara for you. You know, all of us are guilty at one time or another of thinking of about the good old days, right? Often thinking about simpler times can give us a nice break from whatever is going on at the moment. But can nostalgia be dangerous? Here to speak with us today about it is Dr. Christine Bacho, a professor of psychology at Lemoyne College in New York and an expert in nostalgia. Christine, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you so much for inviting me. It's my pleasure. Now, Christine, what what made you, uh, just kind of on a personal note, want to study nostalgia? Of all the things you could choose as a, as a researcher, as a professor, why nostalgia? 
I think it's because I myself am a pretty nostalgic person. And even though I began studying it quite a long time ago, and I was really quite young then, I had noticed that almost everyone can be nostalgic at certain times. And so that got me interested in whether it was a healthy experience or an unhealthy one. Now, define it for us, just so we're all on the same page. Uh, you know, what, what are the limits of nostalgia? What, what is nostalgia? That's a very good question, because today some people define it slightly differently. You will find definitions that really are synonymous with just being sentimental or feeling pleasant feelings. But the actual term, nostalgia, which was coined in 1688, hmm. is a little more complex. It's defined as a bittersweet feeling or emotion uh, when we long for or miss something from our past. Oh, so it, that's interesting. We actually, it's almost, a, it's an echo to the past, but it's, it's, it includes the, the good and the bad of it. We long for it. We miss it. That's exactly right, because there's this recognition or acknowledgement that what once was can never be again. Hmm. And that's true regardless of your timeline, whether you're thinking about childhood a long time ago or whether you're talking about something that happened just yesterday. If you just graduated from school, for example, you know that you can never actually have that experience again. Yeah. And in fact, I guess that's for some, is that where this, where nostalgia might become a little harmful is if we, we just keep longing for it, if we keep wanting it and, and never are able to move into our present? That is why I believe in the early days of studying and writing about nostalgia, most theorists really took a very negative yeah. view of nostalgia. And it was defined as a disease by a medical doctor. Oh, really? And he was defining it that way because he thought of it as extreme homesickness. And what he was observing in soldiers away from home for the first time was that they longed for home to such a point that they stopped eating and they became what today we would call clinically depressed. And he feared that without some kind of intervention, they would in fact even die. So it has a very negative history. And that's one of the things that surprised me when I first started researching it. Is it, um, I mean, and what I loved about the article that we read um, in the conversation, the psychological benefits and trappings of nostalgia, is, is the fact that I guess we've kind of uh, moved, we've evolved a little bit our view. It's not, it's not just this negative thing. It, um, you're finding out that there are, there are kind of positive or even at least neutral benefits of nostalgia. You're absolutely right. Uh, in order to study it as a social scientist would, I first developed a way of measuring it, and I measure it pretty much as a personality disposition or trait. And people who are more prone to nostalgia, more likely to experience it more frequently, tend to be healthier, not less healthy. Uh, so I was very surprised by my initial findings. So people who tend to be nostalgic, for example are not typically depressed people or very sad people. They tend to have very good, healthy uh, profiles. And so that was the first inkling that we had, that there was something more to nostalgia than just the negative side. Yeah, it seems like you don't want to be brain dead, right? You don't want – and times were good, and I think, too, we're finding there's a lot you can learn from your past – 
that could actually create other great moments today. Do we use nostalgia as a way or can we use nostalgia as a way to, you know, recreate good events today? Absolutely. In fact, uh, most of the contemporary research empirically documents what you're talking about. Most of the time, nostalgia is a good coping skill, but it also has some really fundamental psychological benefits. Uh, When you start thinking about it, you realize that nostalgia motivates us to remember the past and to reflect upon it in an intelligent way. It's that reflection on it that can make us use it either for good or for bad. So earlier on you mentioned it would be unhealthy if we became trapped in it, as it would be if we were perpetually longing for the past and not looking toward the future. In the most uh, cases that we have researched, people don't get trapped in the past. Quite the converse, in fact. Uh, being nostalgic correlates with optimism hmm. and looking forward to the future, not, not really longing for the past incessantly. That's interesting. So it correlates with optimism. Um, does it, what, else does it, what else does it correlate? What are the other benefits of it? Is it a, is it a stress reliever? Is it, is it something, too, that we can go into kind of our daydreaming mind and get away from the world? Absolutely. And in fact, part of it depends upon what you're being nostalgic for at the moment. So there are certain things that we're more nostalgic for than others. And this is where it becomes so fascinating. As people go through life, some of the things they really longed for early in life, they sort of give up. For instance, if you were talking about a young adult or even a midlife adult, it's not that they're going to be nostalgic for the toys they played with. They tend to be nostalgic for the way life was, especially with respect to relationships. Hmm. And so a good example of how a nostalgic memory can be so helpful is when someone is in an adverse situation, and adversity can come in so many different ways. Someone could be diagnosed with a serious illness. Someone could have to relocate. We've seen so much of that with the recent hurricanes and flooding. Someone could have a transition in their life, such as a divorce or a death in the family. In times like those, it's very helpful to think back and, in fact, remember the people that you admired most and loved most and how they coped with problems. So there's quite a bit of role modeling that can now occur in your adult life through a vicarious mental exercise. It kind of goes like this. Wow, what would dad have done? Hmm. Or what would mom do if she were here? And we role model the best traits that we loved about the people that uh, come from our past, whether they're still alive or not. Boy, that is – that's really health, healthy. I mean because then it's also you, – you have the ability to go access um, other thoughts, other uh, – it, it's almost like a, the perfect positive psychology solution-oriented approach to life. Go back to what worked and go find your ideal role models even if they're no longer here to help you solve today's problem. That's absolutely right. And when you focus on that, you realize that the old expression – being trapped in the past is exactly the wrong way to look at nostalgia. The reverse of it is true. If it were not for memories, especially nostalgic memories, then we would sort of be 
uh, in a chaos situation. We wouldn't have a sense of continuity that gives us the stability and the security that holds us together throughout all the different changes in life. So nostalgia is a little bit like a psychic glue that can hold things together when we're fearful uh, that things are becoming undone, that there's a lack of control or order in our lives or in the life around us. Yeah. Man, interesting stuff, Christine. Um, I, I want to take a break but come back and continue discussing this too. Like it seems like nostalgia for me is kind of a really positive word, but it also seems like we might fall into a trap of um, of being stuck in not not thinking of what they we could do to get out of our present situation, but instead maybe wallowing or or sliding into a pattern of I don't know what we'd call it negative nostalgia. But uh, more lessons from Dr. Christine Bacho about the psychological benefits and trappings of nostalgia. It's uh, another part of humanity that we're trying to explore here on the Matt Townsend Show. And I smell the sea like it never smelled Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Uh, on the phone with us is Dr. Christine Bacho, who is a professor of psychology at Lemoyne College in New York and an expert in nostalgia, which uh, is really the great definition that she gave us earlier is the bittersweet longing of the past. Bittersweet. So it has two sides to it. We, uh, we enjoy kind of going back and thinking about the good old days, but then there's kind of a bitter side to it that, oh, we just can't have that back. And today she's talking to us um, about really, I guess, I guess, Christine, first of all, welcome back. Thank you for being with us. Thank you. And the, the interesting thing for me is, um, you, I guess there is, you could possibly get trapped there if you're not, I guess, more conscientiously... Uh, trying to drive yourself. Do do people go there um, to escape? Do you sense that? Do they go there? And, and do you, I guess, in your professional practice, also as a counselor, have you seen people that really are are too nostalgic? It's a very good question, and the research on that question is just beginning. It's in its infancy, but we do have a fair amount of knowledge based on clinical experience. And one of the interesting observations is, yes, there is a risk to engaging in nostalgic reverie. And the risk is partly that not only can it be so appealing that if your present life is not in a good shape, that you might be a little tempted to stay there as a a form of escapism. That's not typical, however. But another risk is that you're not quite sure what you're going to uncover as you go back through your life review. So not everyone had the perfect childhood or the perfect teenage years. And so you might uncover, for example, huh. regrets over unfulfilled dreams. Or you might feel that you've gotten off course, that now, because of the way life led you, you're no longer in touch with your what we call the authentic self, who you really wanted to be and who you really wanted to become. So there are risks here that you might uncover issues that you had sort of ignored or forgotten over time. And some people are more prepared or equipped to handle that 
than others. Mm. So, for instance, if someone is already in a state of clinical depression, then they are at higher risk for some of these more unfavorable effects of nostalgia. They might decide that it's just easier to sort of live in the past than to make the effort to try to move forward. And another uh, type of personality that is at higher risk is the kind of person who might have an anxiety problem where they worry so much and they get so afraid of moving forward because the future is uncertain. The past, on the other hand, is certain because it's finished. So sometimes people would rather stay with the safety of the past than take on with courage the uncertain future. And there are ways to deal with this. Hasn't It seems like with nostalgia, just simply because of time passing and kind of the evaporative thought process that we have where a lot of our facts diminish, um, we might have a tendency to make more of our past than it was or to deify people more from our past than is warranted. Well, there's a little bit of that, what they refer to as rosy retrospective. (laughs) And in a rosy retrospective state, what you're doing is being selective. So you're more inclined to think back to the happier things and pretend that the negative things really didn't exist. And so what you end up with is this whole picture that looks just more positive than it really was. But that's why I'm suggesting that if we're really serious about reviewing our past, we're not going to find usually 100% happiness. And this is where someone who has a grounding in a deeply rooted tradition, philosophy, uh, religious faith, something that gives them meaning and purpose, has a real advantage, because we refer to it as positive reappraisal. When you look at the past and you find some conflicts or some issues, you can reappraise the meaning and the purpose of that. In our society today, it's very hard for people to appreciate that suffering, whether we're talking about physical or emotional suffering, can have a value to it. We spend so much of our technology and our uh, progress trying to pretend that we can all be 100% happy all the time. Right. And actually, if you anyone examines his or her life, they realize that some of the most meaningful moments in our life engaged us more deeply in both joys and sometimes sorrows. And an example of that would be if someone is helping their loved one, maybe an elderly loved one, uh, through hospice, obviously there's a great deal of sorrow and a feeling of loss and anticipated grief, but also the great meaning that comes from being together and being there as a support for that person. And one of the most important positive uh, benefits of, of nostalgia, in my opinion, is that it does facilitate what I call the best emotions we have, empathy, compassion, caring for others. It helps to connect us to other people. Hmm. How do we, um, just as we're wrapping up, how do we help facilitate healthy, nostalgic, you know, recovery and and, um, processing for somebody that is going through a traumatic loss or or a major change in life? That's an excellent question. And obviously, if an individual has had a traumatic past 
or they don't feel that they can cope on his or her own, they feel overwhelmed or they sense hopelessness, they really, really should take advantage of uh, counseling or professional help because there is so much available out there for them. But in, in the less serious cases, the ordinary cases of life, the most important key, I think, to help others as well as to help yourself, and sometimes we have to redefine ourselves when conditions make that such that we can no longer be who we were. If you mm. take the example of an athlete who through injury or aging can no longer engage in his or her sport, we might have to discover a new way of being who we are. And one of the best ways of doing that is to reach out to others, not just to get support, but to give support. When you support someone else, and we've seen some heroic examples of this throughout our history, where in times of need and disaster, people spent their energies helping other people and discovered the joys of that. And that helps them redefine who they're going to be for the future. Yeah. Boy, that's beautiful. Really a powerful lesson, I think, for all of us, Christine. Again, Christine Bacho um, is a professor of psychology at Lemoyne College in New York and an expert in nostalgia. Thank you so much, Christine, for that insight. And really, uh, going back is a way of kind of solidifying who you are, understanding the lessons that, that you can bring back to the present day. Um, and there's times when a transition, loss, that you might have to go back in a nostalgic uh, way and, and re- reset your life, reset who you are, re-identify. Powerful stuff. That's why we bring you these uh, great insights. Every one of us just trying to make it through this crazy thing called life. We will continue the journey with you. This is the Matt Townsend Show. You're listening to BYU Radio. Uh, interesting discussion we just had with Christine Bacho about nostalgia, and um, it, it's funny because you know we have, and I, I see it a lot where uh, these these boys that are uh, and girls, uh, young women, young men that go on LDS missions for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter Day Saints, they leave, and then all of a sudden, you know, they're just eighteen year old, nineteen year old kids, really, and the next thing they know, they're gone for a year and a half or two years. And she made a really interesting point that maybe one of the best ways to use nostalgia would be at these transition points in your life. When mom or dad uh, pass away, when uh, you're going through a divorce, when you are all of a sudden away. And if you're not careful and you get too stuck in it, then you start to have – um, what did she call it? Like homesickness, which is what she found with the military back in the day. Uh, when they go away, the soldiers would fall into homesickness, and literally, it was being diagnosed as a as a di- like a, a true medical diagnosis. You had nostalgia. You wow! Are, you are going. You are depressed. And uh, anyway, I thought, how did we get through it? I was away for two years, and I honestly, this sounds totally crazy, but I used to pray that I'd get an appendicitis. Because <laughs> really? I, I was sure if I could just blow my appendix out my side, then I, I would just come home. Hmm. And uh, I prayed and prayed and prayed. And in all my faithfulness, about two months later, my companion uh, dropped to his knees with an appendicitis. So you inflicted another yeah. person. So right wow. then I'm like, wow. I've got some serious faith here. Misdirected a little bit. Yeah. And I thought maybe I, I guess I shouldn't pray for Did that. Did you anymore. apologize? 
I didn't even tell him until oh, – wow. but this is the same guy, by the way. Elder Roa was his name. Did that end his mission? No. Oh, no. It doesn't mm-hmm. end anything. I, got, I actually went and sat at the hospital with him for three days. Served you right. And then I worked with him later in my two-year mission trip, and uh, the guy was still carrying his appendix around in a mason jar, just f- floating in like, formaldehyde. And it actually did leak once. That's a souvenir mm. for you. Yeah. Have you seen an appendix? No, I have not. Just it the looks ones like on, a finger. Just basically. the ones on TV. Yeah. <sighs> See nostalgia. I just went there. Great she also memories. said it's healthy. Yeah. People who who experienced or try to experience nostalgia were more healthy, is what she found in her research. Yeah. It's I, a healthy I thought, thing. I thought that might not be necessarily a a healthy behavior, right? If you dwell on it, you know what I mean. When yeah. I, when I, when I, when people want to be nostalgic, I, I guess you know if you're doing it every once in a while, great. But you know, maybe someone gets kind of caught up in it. But it, it, in a weird way, it's it's a weird healthy, right? Because it, it it makes you feel good, so it actually probably is medicating you, right? With yeah. with good hormone, good feelings, whatever you're going back to. Mm. If you live there too long, then you might not be able to live your present. But I was thinking like as a missionary back in the day, that was kind of a good thing. Like anything that could get me through another day until I started to create my own moments in my new world, it was kind of helpful. Oh, I miss those. Oh, I'd give anything to have that food. Oh, I I wonder what they're doing. It's that birthday. It's my mom's birthday. I wonder what they're all doing on my mom's birthday. It also helps you decipher who your true friends are. Ooh, what do you mean? What I mean by that is, let's say you, you know, let's go back to your mission example. You have these amazing experiences with these these people that you didn't really have a choice whether, you know, whether you could be with them or not. Right, right. They were just placed with you. Yeah, you're just kind of forced into it. Yeah. So now let's say you're back, you've been home for years, and you try to talk to them, and all you can talk about is, hey, remember that time on the mission? If you have nothing else to talk That's about, so true. maybe you know, you're know you not as good of friends as you thought. That's true. It's so true. And I guess, too, in the end, so everybody out there in listener land, we could all just be thinking, nostalgia, good, or at least, any, if anything, it's neutral. It's not positive or negative. But we also have to learn to live in the present. Is is somebody that spends a lot of time going back, reliving their old high school days, are they any less effective than the kid or the person, the adult that sits there and looks at social media all day? It's a good point. Both might be kind of annoying to talk to. They both are annoying. <laughs> and by the way, and so, so if you do it too much, then all of a sudden you maybe aren't progressing and neither is the person that sits there and is living in a real world, just took a selfie, but then spends 30 minutes, you know, re-filtering um, her selfie. In the end, I guess most of us need to learn to live in the present. Yes. It, it couldn't hurt. It couldn't hurt. But the other thing she brought, that, that's a crazy idea about what about when you go back and you realize, man, I've, I'm a train wreck because I was such a different person back then than I am now and I'm not anywhere near what I wanted to be. So then I guess that's a, you know, that's a moment where you've got to decide, OK, now what am I going to do? Yeah, a lot of people would gladly leave the past behind them. Yeah. I mean like even like the high school reunion, I'm like, eh, I'm kind of glad. I, I like who I am now. Because I just feel like I'm stronger than I was then. Yeah. So go. I don't want to go back to that. That's a good point. I mean, I when I was in high school, I was happy with who I was. But looking back, it's like, oh, I was kind of a totally little dweeb. But wouldn't you give 
you know, I'd give a thousand bucks to have my body back then. I mean, not to not to brag, but I was ripped. Hmm. Huh? Talk about nostalgia. It also helps us <laughs> kind of overestimate what we remember. No, 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 no. I don't you may see have it a that warped way. sense of what no. actually happened. You're like, ripped. wow, I was a good athlete. Ripped. Really, you were probably not the guy. Alternative facts. They called me Reggie like after Reggie Jackson. Because I, you got a lot of wedgies? Is that why? No, no, no. Reggie. Oh, I see. Reggie. Mm-hmm. Ah, nostalgia. Good stuff, folks. Well, continue the journey with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. The whole gang will be back next hour for more fun, more ideas to help you live longer and love stronger. <laughs> 